You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Over the course of the week, we want to uncover, I suppose, some essential lessons and stories from the life of some remarkable people that lived in the time of the Judges. And the time period of the Judges is probably one of the most intriguing sections of the Bible and in the history of the nation of Israel. It's a time that was characterized by just countless battles and immense bloodshed and extreme violence. You know, it was a time we find the nation, though, that they frequently lost sight of the God whom they served and turned aside from practicing true worship under Joshua's guidance and become steeped in idolatry and in corruption and rapid moral decay. And what we find, brothers and sisters, is we find that this is a state that they inherited because of a lack of faithful leadership from their parents' generation. It's a state though, that they accepted as their parents failed to utterly remove the nations from before them as they received their inheritance upon entering the promised land. And the book of the Judges is a documented narrative, isn't it, brothers and sisters, of a nation whose history depicted faithlessness, idolatry, and corruption, and yet scattered Through this dark period of Israel's times, the scripture highlights for us some remarkable characters who demonstrate incredible faith, bravery, and spiritual perception whom God used and God raised to inspire and to encourage and to revitalize a remnant of his people to continue to keep the promise and his purpose alive throughout time. You know, it's those inspirational examples that we want to explore with Deborah and Barak and Jael, and we wish to gain some incredible insights from powerful lessons in leadership for us today, and to gain encouragement from what they were able to achieve as we endeavour to cast aside our enemies and the environment that we live in to try and seize our inheritance and prepare for the kingdom. And so, Over the course of our six studies together, we're going to have a look at six, well, hey, six studies. Your old six is, yes, six, right? So Deborah, we're going to have a look at tonight, the inspirational prophetess. But before we look at Deborah, we want to have a look at the background to her remarkable, what makes her so remarkable? We want to have a look at the background to her as a person. And then in our second study tonight, we're going to have a look at Bayrak. What was his challenge? What was the problem? How Deborah motivates him to get him to take a role that he was hesitantly not fulfilling and to uncover how she worked with him so that we can learn lessons around helping each other as well in in our walk. Then we're going to have a look um, in our exhort tomorrow at the the lovely story of Jael, um, and we're going to have called that the displaced wife, and we'll see why as we get into the story. And then we want to have a look in our fourth study during the middle of the week on the tribes and Deborah's song, Right? What Deborah sings about, what makes her and Barak sing their hearts out about this, about what they did and what they didn't do and what they were so encouraged and what they were so disgusted by when they looked at the nation at the time. 
And then on our Thursday night, I think it is, we want to have a look at the interesting insight that Deborah sings about at the end of Judges chapter 5 about Sisera's mum, Sisera's mother. What on earth was Deborah talking about at the end of Judges chapter 5 about a woman who's dwelling in a castle with her maidens and what was, what was actually going on in the story? And what we find, brothers and sisters, in that study is this, that actually the destruction of Sisera was only but a prelude to the main event, that actually Sisera's destruction was actually just a catalyst for the nation to respond and to seize their inheritance that they had failed to take. And that's what Deborah and Bayer are going to sing about. And Sisera's mum, well, well, she was the queen of the empire, and of course the type is absolutely obvious with Armageddon and the subjugation of Europe, with this woman who dominated a castle. And then what we want to do in our final study together with the exhort on the following Sunday is to have a look at this expression, leading captivity captive. What, what does Paul see in Deborah's song and in David's commentary that gets pulled from Moses that was so remarkable about what Christ accomplished in how he led and what that demands of each and every one of us in terms of our response and our leadership and our ecclesias. So, that's the course of the next six studies. Hopefully, um, hopefully you stay with us <laughs> as we endeavour to, to go through this remarkable story. Okay, so Deborah and the story in the context of her times. This study, we want to spend some time to show that the issue of the nation at this point in time was that of failed leadership. There weren't people standing up to take the responsibility amongst the nation to help them understand God's purpose and God's ways. Why was that? What happened? How did they get to this point? It's remarkable, isn't it? That they, the nation has come out of Egypt. They seize their inheritance. God works amongst them. And then only a very short period of time later, they've totally lost the plot. How and why did that occur? Well, Tonight, we, um, this afternoon, we want to actually have a look at how that occurred. And so we find as Israel leaves the wilderness and crosses over the River Jordan, Joshua assists the nation to take control. And after a series of military campaigns, the nation who once occupied the land of Canaan were subdued, and the 12 tribes received their allotted inheritance in the land. And the Levites, well, they received their cities of refuge and, and the tabernacle was established in Shiloh. And we know that that's all the story because in Joshua 18, don't turn this up in verse 1, it says that the land was subdued before them. But come with me to Joshua chapter 21. I want to show you that there's some interesting expressions that we can see start to unfold as we get into the story of the story of Judges. So Joshua 21, the land is subdued before them. And Joshua says in Joshua 20, 21 and verse 43, he says, Right, so thus, thus everyone in their suburbs were given to the Levites, this their inheritance. And it says in the summary of Joshua 21, and of course, if you went through the back of Joshua 21, it's the, the allocation of the cities of refuge and, and the inheritances of, of, of Levi. And at the end of that chapter, it says in verse 43, Joshua 21, And Yahweh gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. So they received all of it. It was the land, notice, that he sware 
unto, here's your colouring in pencil, their fathers. Right? And Yahweh gave them rest all about, according to all that he swear, unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. Yahweh delivered them all their enemies into their hand. There failed not ought any good thing which Yahweh had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Can you get the emphasis of Joshua 21? That God promised that he would give unto their fathers everything that he said. And exactly what he promised, he gave. And he gave it unto their fathers. All came to pass that Yahweh had spoken unto the house of Israel. All of it came to pass. And so, brothers and sisters and young people, under Joshua's leadership and under their guidance, the tribes took their inheritance. And whilst the work was started, there remained yet work to be completed. Whilst the land had been subdued before them, the nations amongst them had not yet fully been eradicated. They had to yet finish what Joshua had begun. And Joshua knew that, and he knew the importance of that, and he calls the nation together in Joshua chapter 23. Come with me to Joshua chapter 23. So they had begun, they had subdued the land, all the enemies had been given into their hand, everything God had promised them had happened, and Joshua knew that there was a lesson still that they had to finish. And so he calls the nation together at the end of his life to warn them and to exhort them and to encourage them to complete the task to remain faithful to their obliteration of their enemies. And so in Joshua 23 and verse 1 it says, And it came to pass... A long time after Yahweh had given rest unto Israel from all the enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and was stricken in age. Joshua can no longer lead in front of them. And Joshua calls the nation of Israel together and says to them, calls for the elders, notice, and for the heads and for their judges and for their officers. Why does he do that, brothers and sisters and young people? Because he's wanting to inspire the leaders amongst the nation to continue the work that he now can't do. He calls for the leadership amongst the nation. And he says to them, I'm old. I'm stricken in age. And ye have seen all that Yahweh your God hath done unto you. All these nations because of you. Yahweh your God is he that hath fought for you. You already know. Notice the past tense. He's already fought for you. You know that. So he says, Behold, I have divided, verse 4, unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for all your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off even unto the great sea westward. And Yahweh your God, he shall, here's the future, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight and ye shall possess their land as Yahweh your God hath promised you. But he says, it requires something really special. Be ye therefore, verse 6, very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside from the left to the right, that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause them to swear by you, neither serve nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto Yahweh your God as Ye have done this day, for Yahweh hath driven out from among you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man shall be able to stand before you this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, 
For Yahweh your God, he it is that fighteth for you as he hath promised you. Can you see the links from chapter 21 to chapter 23? Take, he says, here's the exhortation. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love Yahweh your God. Else, if ye do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even those that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you know, he says, for a surety, that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sight, and thorns in your eyes, and until ye perish from off the good land, which Yahweh hath given for you. And so Joshua's message was pretty simple. His exhortation was it. Remove them or be removed yourself. It's simple. You've got to finish the job we've started. Else you will be removed. Watch out for these nations and just in your mind, just remember that. Verse 13. Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God shall no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps. Notice that. We'll see that's exactly what happens in Psalm 106. And so they had to be very courageous. And he warns them about the nations that remained amongst them. They had to finish the job. And if you had the colouring in pencil, colour it in. Those that might remain among you. All right? Those that remain among you. It happens twice. Verse 7 and verse 12. There was a remnant that still needed to be eradicated from among them. And so what happens? The leadership passes away. Those that are strong die. And the next generation, brothers and sisters, have to stand up. And so we come now to Judges chapter 1. And so what happens now is Joshua dies. Verse 1 of Judges chapter 1, it says... Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked Yahweh, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight? Let's, let's take Joshua's expression and Joshua's words and let's finish the job. And so they begin. And what happens, brothers and sisters, and we won't have time to spend in, in Judges chapter 1, but in the screen you'll see that they begin to eradicate the nations that were amongst them with gusto. So Judah takes Simeon with him after seeking Yahweh's blessing and they start out with incredible determination. And so in verses 4 to 7, the Canaanites by, with Judah are destroyed and conquered in Jerusalem. The Canaanites then in verses 8 to 15 are overcome and destroyed in Hebron. The Canaanites are wiped out and destroyed in Hormah in verse 17. The Canaanites are annihilated and destroyed in Philistia and Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. They're all gone. Judah shot off to a flying start. Why? Well, come and have a look across the page. Judges chapter 1 and verse 9. Why was it that they could do this with so much ease? Verse 19 says that Yahweh was with Judah and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain. He started off with a flying start because Yahweh was with him. He sought Yahweh's blessing and they went for it. But then the mission came to a grinding halt. 
And the verse says in verse 19, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. You know, they couldn't drive them out. They had chariots of iron. You see, Judah was absolutely enthusiastic about their work and their inheritance. They commenced their battles with eager zeal and passion, supported by their brethren from Simeon. However, as soon as the work started to encounter some obstacles and challenge, they came face to face with chariots of iron. And all of a sudden, brothers and sisters, their faith and their trust in God was tested and it melted. I think sometimes we can be very easy to judge Judah in this time. You know, we can think, oh, come on, why, why couldn't they carry it off? You know, it's not, it's not hard to think how hard that might have been, brothers and sisters. They were fighting tanks with toothpicks. They had nothing in their hand. They were bringing a knife to a gunfight here. The chariots, they had nothing. But they had Yahweh. And Joshua, and you could be easily forgiven for, for, for sort of, you know, forgiving Judah for having some challenges, but God was with them. And without God, they would have been completely ill-equipped to battle the Canaanites. But Joshua had given them a warning, brothers and sisters, a warning that they would face this challenge. They would come face to faith, faced with chariots of iron. Have a look. Just hold your hand here in Judges 1. And turn back to Judges, uh, Joshua chapter 17. He had warned them of this. Joshua 17, verse 17. So this was, this was Judah. And the, uh, sorry, this was the children of Joseph. He told, told them that they'd face these things. They said, well, hey, look, you ever, the children of Joseph said, verse 13, hey, Mate, we haven't got a big enough portion. You know, why have you given me just one lot and one portion to inherit? Seeing I'm such a great people, verse 14. And Joshua said, well, if you're a great people, you get up into the wood and cut it down yourselves. Knock them out. The children said, well, the hill's not enough for us. All the Canaanites dwell in the land of the valley. They've got chariots of iron, verse 16. All right? Both they of whom are Beth Shan and their towns of the valley of Jezreel. They've got chariots. The valley of Jezreel, brothers and sisters, we're going to come across the chariots of iron in the valley of Jezreel, all again in the story of Deborah and Barak. And Joseph says, oh, that's going to be too hard for me. Oh, mate, I'm taking this hill country. Yeah, I could cut down some forests. Sure I can, but I can't take that area. And Joseph, Joshua, Joshua turns around in verse 17 and says to the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and Manasseh, says, you, thou art a great people. You hast great power. Thou shalt not just have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is the wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be for thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. You will do it, says Joshua. Get on with it. And so Judah encounters chariots of iron, and their faith, their faith melts before them. He says, listen, you're going to face that issue and you need to be strong enough to have courage that God is strong enough to help you. But you know, here's the sad, sad thing about Judges chapter 1. Because Judges 1 is now going to depict for us what happens when one person 
or one tribe fails to finish the job. You see, it was Judah's faithless leadership because of chariots of iron that now set up a disastrous precedent for the other nations who failed to completely eradicate their challenges in their inheritances. Judah was first. But tribe after tribe after tribe now failed to drive out the inhabitants from the land. Judah first, verse 19. They could not utterly drive out the inhabitants of the valley. But then Benjamin couldn't either, verse 21. Neither did Benjamin drive out the Jebusites. Neither could Manasseh, verse 28. Neither did he utterly drive them out. Verse 29, Ephraim. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, and Asher, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants. And they just coloured the pencil and right across, they could not utterly drive them out, did not utterly drive them out, did not do it. One after the other, Judah, Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher. One tribe cascades now amongst the nation. What, like mould, brothers and sisters, that fear and cancer now permeates the remaining tribes. Verse 33, it says, And Naphtali, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali, that's Barak's tribe. And so like mould and cancer, the faithlessness of one tribe began to spread and infected the remaining tribes until ultimately Israel compromised their divinely appointed position and purpose. They lost their faith, lost their inheritance. So much so, brothers and sisters, that Psalm 106, verse 34 to 43 says, we won't read all of it, but here's a section. They did not utterly destroy the nations concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. They served their idols, which were, as Joshua 23, verse 13 said, would be a snare unto them. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions. Therefore, it says, the wrath of God kindled against his people insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. He gave them into the hand of the heathen and them that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought in under subjection, under their hand. And Psalm 106 describes for us the problem of the time of the judges because they fell amongst the nation and intermingled. He gave, it says, into the hand of the heathen and to them that hated them, that they ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought in subjection under their hand. Faithless leadership, brothers and sisters and young people, in the tribes. And a lack of trust in Yahweh's protective hand cost Israel their inheritance. But the question we have to ask is why? Why did their faith fail? What caused the tribe's faith in God to waver so much? Well, Judges 2 tells us exactly 
what happened. Come with me to Judges chapter 2 and verse 6. Here's the summary of why their faith failed. So Joshua 2 verse 6 says, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the leadership, the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of Yahweh that he did for Israel. So they served them while they were there. But then Joshua the son of Nun and the servant of Yahweh died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash. And also, verse 10 says, that generation were gathered unto their fathers. So everyone that surrounded Joshua that had seen them and all the elders and the leaders that were there at that time that had seen the great works that Yahweh did, passed off. And now, says verse 10, there arose another generation after them, which knew not Yahweh, nor yet the works that he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. They served Balaam. They forsook Yahweh Elohim of, here's the expression, their fathers, which brought them up out of the land of Egypt and followed the other gods, the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked Yahweh to anger. And they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hand of the spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about them. So that they could no longer, so they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Brothers and sisters and young people, what was the problem? What caused their faith to fail? The answer, says the record in Judges chapter 2, was that the parents failed to transfer and to inspire the next generation and failed to pass on the mantle of leadership and responsibility to their children who hadn't witnessed the power of God in conquering the land. They failed to demonstrate in that next generation the same fervency and zeal that they themselves had. And so what happened, brothers and sisters, was that they forsook Yahweh Elohim of their fathers and served Baal and Ashtoreth. You see, the problem is that the parents failed to transfer the truth. But just as devastating, the children didn't stand up and grab it with both hands to personalize the truth for themselves. Oh, brothers and sisters and young people, here's an enormous lesson for all of us when it comes to leadership and the truth. See, there's a lesson first and foremost to parents, to leaders, to elders, those that have position of responsibility. You see, many, many of those have grown up, they've been in the truth for quite some time, They've experienced life. They've experienced the trials. You've seen the hand of God working in your life. Brothers and sisters, it's imperative now 
that we invest in the future with the next generation because they have to play a leadership role when we're gone. We must play a leadership role in ensuring our lifelong passion and zeal in the truth that we've built up over so much time. That we've appreciated God's hand working with us in our challenges and our trials. We've got to hand that in all responsibility to the next generation. We've got to allow them room to grow, to develop in the truth, realising that they are just starting out on the same journey that we've already embarked on many years before. And we've got to let them grow, make mistakes, and develop. It's a process, brothers and sisters. It's a journey that takes time and patience and diligence and trust that as much as God has worked in our lives, he's going to work in me. And we've got to cherish that next generation. We've got to encourage that next generation to grow the same zeal, the same passion, and the same energy in service in the truth. If they're ever, ever going to have the ability to hold on to that and pass that to the next generation. And I think sometimes it's very easy to be upset, build resentment, be impatient, become bitter, that people haven't got the same tenacity or the same fervour that we had at their age. We've got to grow that. It's our responsibility. We've got to guide it gently. We've got to encourage it fervently. And above all else, make room for them to to grow into the role of leadership so that they too can personalise the truth in the same way as we did. You see, brothers and sisters, this role isn't optional. It's imperative. It's our responsibility. It's our duty in the truth to ensure the truth remains alive and to trust that God will protect it and them to grow and to develop. It's our responsibility to pass the mental of that responsibility to the next generation. And the truth depends on it, brothers and sisters. Because if we don't do it, it's pretty obvious what happens. So enough about the responsibility of parents and elders amongst the ecclesia. What's the responsibility for young people and for those that are growing up in the truth? Well, so I'll put myself in this bracket as well. (laughs) You know, it's our responsibility as, as younger people in the ecclesia as we try to grow to look to the wisdom and the experience of those that have gone before us. To understand what they've achieved and why they've achieved it and how God's worked in their life to realise that they've worn the heat and burden of the day and have learned so many life lessons that God has taught them that we might learn from them. Many have walked most of their life in the truth and they bear the scars and the experience of trials both won and lost. But those that have worked with others through the issues of life have built up a deep appreciation of the love and power and patience and providence of God in their own lives. It's our responsibility and our duty as those growing up in the truth 
to respect, therefore, the thoughts and experiences of those that have gone before. But more importantly, or just as important, it is our responsibility to step up, to not shirk that responsibility, to take on the role and responsibility of trying to help and to grow and to serve, because they won't be there forever, will they, brothers and sisters? As we know. And it won't be long, and it'll be our turn to transfer that truth to our children as we grow so that they carry on the truth if Christ remains away. Therefore, as young people, it is our responsibility to personalise the truth early, but in, do so, in doing so, listen and to seek advice from those who have witnessed the power and the mercy of God in their own lives and to take on the mantle of responsibility and to step up and serve wherever we can. And thus, brothers and sisters, by leaning in together, and by God's grace, the truth will pass from generation to generation because God will bring about his purpose. See, there's great lessons, isn't it, brothers and sisters? If we're going to maintain our faith together, we have to learn to work together. But unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this didn't happen in this generation. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but if you go to the appendices of the judges, what we see in the appendices is exactly the problem of what happens if it's not passed properly from generation to generation. Don't have time to look at it, but you know, chapters 17 to 18 of the appendices of the judges, that fits in right at this section in Judges chapter 2. Demonstrates for us, firstly, the idolatry that occurred in the tribe of Dan when one man stole from his mother and mummy, dad, mummy says, oh, you're a good boy for returning part of it, and then builds an idol out of it. So it's disgraceful. And the idolatry in the tribe of Dan was created from the grandson of Moses. And you know what that ended up doing, brothers and sisters, was corrupting all the doctrine of the truth. And then in chapter 19 to 21, we see the story of, of the of the, the Levite who has a concubine who's abused by the, ben of ben, the men of Benjamin and cut up in pieces and sent around the, the, tribe, the entire 12 tribes. And the, and the story of this in chapters 19 to 21 is the immorality in the tribe of Benjamin was caused because of the grandson of Aaron. And this demonstrates a problem with the corruption of practice. And these two stories encapsulate the challenge of the time of failed leadership and transferring the truth from generation to generation and how quickly that can happen. The appendices, we know, begin and end with a catchphrase that summarised the time of the nation of Israel. Judges 17 verse 6 and Judges 21 verse 25, the encapsulation of that, those appendices says that in those days... There was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Do you know, sometimes we can mistake the thinking of this expression, meaning that they just did whatever they wanted. But I don't think that that's quite true. I think it's slightly worse than that. <laughs> you see, I don't think necessarily it means that they did whatever they wanted. You know, the word for right, when it says every man did that which was right in his own eyes, is the word used in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 8. You see, Deuteronomy 12 and verse 8 says, don't bother turning it up, I'll do it for you. Deuteronomy 12 verse 8 says, listen, 
Moses says, listen, I don't want you to do after the things which ye do here this day, every man doing what was right in his own eyes, for ye are not yet come into the rest of the land of your inheritance. But when you go over, I want you to do all these things in the place that God chooses. The word for right is the word for straight. It's the word for judgment, righteousness. And what they were doing was they were trying to work out the truth, but not using the law as their guide. Joshua had said that. Don't you turn from the right hand to the left. You make sure you do exactly what Moses said. We saw that in, in Joshua 21, when he said, listen, you need to keep straight and true. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. Don't try and work out what you think is right. And we know that when we look at the story of the Levites, he says, oh, I think... Um, the man says, oh, yes, that's right, we need a priest. All right, you're of Levite, great, bang. He was, he was trying to do the truth, but not all Levites were priests. Only the sons of Aaron were priests. So he was trying to do sort of what he thought it was right, but not wasn't complete abandonment. It distorted the truth and corrupted its practice. You see, they were doing what was right, but failed to use the law as their guide, and so they apostatized from the truth. And it's interesting, brothers and sisters, who were they supposed to turn to to understand what was right? Who were they to turn to? Well, Judges 16 says, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 16 says that he would appoint for them judges. So every man shall give as he is able. Judges 16 verse 18 says that he will put judges and officers they were supposed to make in all thy gates which Yahweh thy God hath given thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. They were going to help them understand the law. The Levites weren't able to be in every city, and so God appointed judges for them, or actually not God. Moses says, I want you to appoint judges in every city. Make sure it's done. There was no king to lead them. They had to appoint judges in every city throughout all thy gates to, not, to give just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not be respective persons, neither take a gift or be, you know, dodgy. Thou shalt altogether be just, thou shalt follow, and that thou mayest live and inherit the land which shall thy God giveth thee. That's Deuteronomy 16, verses 17 to 20. And so with no king to lead them, they were supposed to turn to the judges. But brothers and sisters, when we get to the time of Deborah and Barak, we get to the time of Ehud, where were the judges? They were supposed to be in every city. But they weren't there. They weren't there. So with no king to lead them, and the failure of the judges to speak the law, well, it was natural that the dilution of the truth began. Until here they stood once more. No leader, no knowledge, no hope, doing that which they thought was right in their own eyes, and rapidly losing Everything. So in Joshua chapter 2 it says that God raised them up judges. Verse 16. Nevertheless, Yahweh raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Joshua 2 verse 16. And yet they would not hearken unto the judge, but they went a whoring after their own gods and bowed themselves unto them, and they were quickly turned out of the way. You see, God raised up judges. Judges were supposed to judge the people in all spiritual matters. And God raised up judges both to respond to the idolatry and to lead the people in their responsibility to overcome their enemies. 
And so the first judge that God raises is Ehud. We have no time to look at the story. Fascinating story with a man who's, who was just amazing with his left hand, straight with a dagger under the fat guts of, of um, Eglon and disappears and he dies. And the nation has this incredible piece of, of time from Ehud's leadership who snuck in and, and absolutely wiped out the problem for them and showed them what it meant to lead and to how to overcome. And so they had 80 years of peace under his reign. And one after the other, God raised up judge after judge after judge. But as with leaders, if people don't follow, things fall back. And so we pick up the story now, brothers and sisters, in Judges chapter 4. So here we are, without, without leadership amongst the nation, a vacuum created because Ehud's now dead. And once more, without that solid leadership, a void opens up once more. And thus, once again, the children of Israel fall into apostasy because he is gone. And we pick up the story now in Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. Hopefully you can see how this all builds to the story of how amazing it is for this particular prophet, Tess, to turn up amongst the nation. And so it says, Judges 4 and verse 1, that the children of Israel did again evil in the sight of Yahweh when Ehud was dead. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. You see, Ehud had provided a secure environment through God's assistance, both military and spiritual leadership. The people ought to have leveraged this time. Eighty years he gave them to consolidate their inheritance, but they, well, they failed to capitalise on the opportunity. And failing to realise that the 80 years that they received was actually a gift of God, they apostatized and used it to their own end. They missed it through complacency and mistaken self-assurance. They thought God was with them, but not because he moved, they moved into apostasy. And so once again, they do evil in the sight of Yahweh. You know, Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings in her song, they choose New gods, Judges 5 verse 8. They chose new gods. And what happened, brothers and sisters? There was war in the gates. There was war in the gates. Where was the judge supposed to be, brothers and sisters? The judge was supposed to be sitting in the gate, providing just judgment. But because they had forsaken the judge, because they had forsaken God, because they had apostatized, instead of a judge giving righteous laws, they now had war. And so it says, God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. There's, a, there's irony in that, brothers and sisters. Human nature doesn't change and neither does God's punishment. He traded them to a group of traders. There's irony in it, brothers and sisters. He trades them, he sells them to a group of traders. And the Canaanites, the Canaanites means the lowland they come from the root word meaning to bend the knee, right? And, or to humiliate. Do you know who they were? They were a trading nation of merchants who would sell their soul to get a deal. And their leader, Jabin, his name means whom God observes. Whom God observes. Really? Of course, because God put him there. His name comes from the root word meaning understanding or intelligence. That's 
Jabin, whom God observes from the root word of understanding and intelligence. You see, this one was the CEO of a merchant trading nation who was the entire representation of the wisdom of the world in all its conceit and all its glory. He's the CEO, the wisdom of the world, intelligence, and God put him in this place. And you know, he gripped that nation of Israel and grabbed them and poured them under, sold them into his hand and crushed them. And he's reigning in Hazor, just means a castle. And he's got this dominant castle over the entire region with iron tentacles. And he's crushing them. And he rules over the vast area from the land of the north of Galilee right down through the Jezreel Valley. And how did he dominate these people? Well, it says that he had Sisera and 900 chariots of iron. Do you know, it's very easy, brothers and sisters, to read through this story and to read that there was a hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. But brothers and sisters, if we had done our readings, we would know that this had already happened not long ago. Have a look in your margin against H on my, in the wide margin Bible. Joshua chapter 11. Yahweh sells them with the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Hang on a minute. Joshua 11 had already told us about a king by the name of Jabin who had lived in a castle called Hazel once before. Come back to me to Joshua chapter 11. You see, this, this is a repeat. Why is it a repeat? Joshua 11 says, in verse 1, came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard these things, he sent Jobah, king of Madron, and the king of Shimeon, and the king of Ashphar, to the kings that were on the mountains, and to go up against them. And they were, verse 4 says, that they, they were all their host. Were, were, were much people, even as the sand which is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots many. We've seen this man before. Jabin, who's reigning in Hazel with all these chariots and horses. And Joshua, in a previously previous military campaign, had taken Jabin the first out in the first battles and crusades in the land. You see, the kings of Canaan joined forces. There's sand of the seashore for multitude, and they had horses and chariots. And Joshua wipes them out in verse 8. Look what it says. And so, verse 7, So Joshua came, and all the people of war with them against them by the waters of Merom suddenly, and they fell on them. And Yahweh delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them, chased them unto great Zidon. Now, brothers and sisters, we start to find out why Barak and his men don't just fight Sisera, they chase Sisera out. Because that's what Joshua had done. And they come in the valley of Mizpah. And they smote them until there was left none remaining. Just remember that expression. We're going to see that in our second study. And Joshua did unto them as Yahweh bade him. And he hoffed their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor. And smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazel before time was the head of all those kingdoms, and they smote all the souls that were in with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not left anything to breathe. And he burnt Hazel with fire. And all the cities of those kings, and all the kings of them, did Joshua take and smote them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. 
So here's the question, brothers and sisters. <laughs> if Joshua had done that in Joshua chapter 11, what on earth is Jabin now living again in a resurrected castle only moments later in history? Here's a new king calling himself Jabin, living in a recently refurbished city that had been once taken by the children of Israel. What had they failed to do, brothers and sisters? And the answer was, because of Naphtali's faithlessness, Barak's tribe, brothers and sisters, they failed to capitalize on that conquest and lost it. And now they were paying for it. You see, because now another king had arisen and taken back the city of Hazel and had taken on the title of his predecessor from 110 years before that, and now had expanded his empire even further. And he didn't just now want the city of Hazel. He didn't just take back the city of Hazel. He was now... Not just the king of Hazor. Brothers and sisters, we come now to Joshua chapter 4, and he's the king of Canaan, brothers and sisters. He's taken all the territory, and boy, oh boy, is he going to make Israel pay for their crimes. Naphtali is now going to be oppressed. They're going to be his servants, and he mightily oppresses them, says Judges chapter 4. He mightily oppresses them. You see, lesson in that, brothers and sisters, if we don't take away, if we don't destroy the things that take away from God and that lead us out of the truth, if we don't utterly remove things like that, they're going to come back and bite us. And not just bite us, they're going to come back with so much more force because they're feeling oppressed. They're going to come back with double pressure. We can't just temporarily remove from view like a Band-Aid. We've got to utterly cut off things while we can so that we can take our inheritance. And so the oppression of Jabin's military campaigns were managed now by a man called Sisera, the captain of his host. His name means um, array, battle array. Sisera's name means a battle array. And by name, Sisera was also by character. You see, this man was a military genius, a military strategist, a warrior, who marshaled army all over the Jezreel Valley. He led and he marshaled that entire army from a city called Harasheth of the Gentiles. You know what's remarkable about this city? The Hebrew word for Harasheth means a city of mechanical workers. Just tuck that away in your brain. We're going to come across that in our third study tomorrow. A city of mechanical workers. It means a root word for carving and cutting. It was a city of artificers and workmen, beaters of metal. These were the city of the grease monkeys and the panel beaters, right? They were apprentices. They had them up all over the place, trying to uh, take them from all around the surrounding tribes. It's Harasheth of the Gentiles. They had gone and handpicked the best people for this job. And under that oppression... It says, verse 3, The children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. 900 chariots of iron. You see, these little metal objects, brothers and sisters, stood as a testimony, a witness for their faithlessness. Their nightmare had returned. Their faithlessness of their grandparents' failure and their parents now comes back in vengeance to haunt them. And for 20 years, it says, 
he mightily oppressed them. You know, the word mightily is only used two other times in the Old Testament, and it's a word that is used of entire dominant strength and force. And the word oppression is used only really to describe Israel's oppression from the Egyptian bondage and slavery. Mightily upon it. It was the worst oppression Israel had ever faced. It was worse than, worse than Egypt. It was worse than Eglon. And it lasted for 20 years. Brothers and sisters, that's what happens when we don't utterly remove things that cause us problems. How bad was it, brothers and sisters? How bad was that oppression? Well, it says, Judges chapter 5 and verse 6. It was so bad in the days of Shamgar, in the days of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travellers walked through byways. That's how bad that oppression was. Judges 5 verse 6. It was so bad that they were scared to travel between cities. And if they had to, they'd use the goat tracks from the back country just in case. It was worse than COVID. It was tough. And you know what? It says, when it says that the, that the highways were un, 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 um, unoccupied and the travellers walked through the byways and the inhabitants of the villages ceased, they ceased in Israel, it means to come to an end. The main arteries for food were closed. The main way of getting things around the country was gone. Anyone wanting getting around to travel had to travel through the gnarly goat tracks of the back country. No one moved around. Food was scarce. Trade was not existent. The noose of Sisera and Jabin grew tighter and tighter as the mighty oppression of sank Israel into complete and utter depression. And it's into the scene of utter misery and oppression and depression we're introduced to one that gave comfort. Deborah, it says, was a prophetess. The wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. Deborah, her name means a bee. And really, it's a reference to its systematic instincts and processes. I've had a bit to do with bees in my time. Happy to talk about them. Remarkable. The thing about a bee is, is they are really organised. So the idea of to, to be systematic in its instinct and its processes means that she was a ability to arrange things. That's what the root word means, to arrange. And it refers to, in this stomach, her voice. She was obviously capable of putting things together in a way that made sense. She could arrange words of counsel. Deborah was a bee, and one could refer to all her diligence as a worker as she was. But the record wants us to realise that although she was diligent, it was the order and arrangement of her counsel and advice that she was recognised for. She was a prophetess. You know, it's remarkable when you look, we don't have any time to look at it. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, the sweet counsel of wisdom is going to reward like honey. You ever look at those expressions, honey is sweetness. Psalm 19, verse 9 and 10, and Psalm 119, verse 103. And this woman was able to provide food that was so delicious that the nation came day after day. Because in a spiritual wasteland, and in a vacuum of leadership, 
in the time of the judges, her refreshing counsel of her judgment would have come as relief to the people that sought counsel from her. She's the prophetess. Do you know, what is, the, what is the work of a prophetess? Well, Deuteronomy 18 says that the work of a prophet was to expound God's mind and to expound God, God's message. She had been moved by Yahweh's words and had prophesied of their oppression and God's judgments at the hand of Jabin due to their idolatry. And this, therefore, brothers and sisters, I believe, earned her a reputation among them as speaking God's mind and God's message. And all Israel, it says, came to her for judgment. Do you know that's remarkable, brothers and sisters, because judges were supposed to be appointed in every city. In every city, there was supposed to be a judge, Deuteronomy 16. And yet here, all Israel were coming up the goat tracks to receive advice from this remarkable woman. Where were all the other judges, brothers and sisters and young people? Leadership had failed. The inhabitants, it says, Judges chapter 5 and verse 7 says that the inhabitants of the villages ceased. The words really mean the leaders or the chief rulers disappeared. Leadership completely gone. The place where the judges should have been, there was war happening in them. Leadership was gone. It's better translates the idea of the inhabitants of the villages. It's the chieftains or the rulers were gone. Leadership was disappeared. As a result of failed leadership, idolatry had entered the land and thus God punished them. And because of this mighty oppression, all Israel had to scurry and dart from bush to bush, down the byways and the goat tracks, to seek the counsel from this remarkable woman. And she dwells under the palm tree of Deborah. We don't have any time to look at it, but the palm tree is a symbol of righteousness. And she dwells between Ramah and Bethel, the high place and the house of God. They knew where she was. They knew what she stood for. And therefore, she was capable of giving advice. The palm tree, the upright, righteous palm tree. And Deborah came at a time of immense leadership vacuum and stood up and took on the responsibility of serving her brothers and sisters. You know, that's a lesson for us out of this study, brothers and sisters, if we haven't already got a few lessons. You see, leadership is, is service, not a position. You see, when times are tough, when the way is difficult, when we see people under stress, trial and anguish, whose responsibility is it to provide the support and to serve? The answer is it's every single, each one of us that needs to see the need and step up and serve. You see, not everyone is going to be leaders like Bayrak, who are going to lead from the front, charging off into battle and leading the way. Not everyone can do that, brothers and sisters. But everyone can show Deborah-like leadership, to care, to show love, to offer support, to offer counsel in times of trial and hardship, and particularly in those times, leadership is needed. Leadership is not a position. Leadership is seeing a need and serving. We've each got to step up and show that we care. 
We can't just wait and expect others. You know, here my sent him is not the spirit of the Bible, is it? We've got to step up and show care. We're not wait for others to stand up. But care and love for one another is a requirement and a commandment of our Lord who demonstrated leadership by service to those he loved. We've got to do the same. True leadership is all about the inspiration of others by the power of positive example through service. True leadership is like that, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's about the inspiration of others by the power of positive example through what we do. And we're going to see in witness in our next study just how Deborah was so brilliant at that and how she was able to carefully and thoughtfully and lovingly but sternly empowers Barak, the hesitant commander, to lead and who then will inspire others to lead himself and to serve and overcome their oppressors. So last class, we saw the background to the story of, of Deborah and Barak and, and, and the times of the judges. We, see, we saw the times of the judges as a time where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They weren't using the law as their guide and as such they drifted away from God and served idols because they had no, that, that the law wasn't giving them the direction that they needed. And as a result of that, they weren't turning to the judges because there were no judges because there was a complete lack of leadership as a result of the faithlessness in the parents' generation who had failed to pass on the passion of the truth to the next generation and the generation there failed to personalise the truth for themselves. And so they quickly left the truth and therefore God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, a man who should never have been there because they failed to capitalise on the destruction of Jabin I 120 years before. And now he came back to, with vengeance and Sisera and his army, who was the chief military strategist who had put them under total and utter oppression. You know, and I think it's very easy, brothers and sisters, for us to say, and we're just yapping about this um, uh, over dinner. It's very easy to say, you know, they're under complete oppression for 20 years. 20 years is a long time, right? 20 years is a long time. You know, how hard was it over COVID for, to go and get food from the supermarket? Well, it was for us anyway. We'd, we'd, you know, putting masks on and, you know, queuing up two metres apart and, oh, it was in rigmarole. These guys had... 20 years of oppression to walk the goat tracks to get food. It was intense oppression. No food, no trade, too scared to travel, all due to failed leadership of the entire nation, which had completely failed. And into that vacuum, we saw at the very end, Deborah the prophetess, who was providing the sweetness of God's word and the counsel of righteousness. And she stepped up to provide God's message and God's judgments for all Israel. It says in Judges chapter 4, in verse 5, the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And that's a fascinating thing, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That Israel came to her for judgment. 
Now, I want you to stop and I want you to think about that for a second. Because who was Deborah? Well, Deborah is called the prophetess. So Deborah is called Deborah, a prophetess. And yet Israel was coming to her because she judged Israel at that time. Now, that's a little bit odd. Because in Judges chapter 2, what we realise when, when they failed and, and when they had challenges, it says that actually in Judges chapter 2, whithersoever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them. Nevertheless, Yahweh raised up judges. Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. And yet it doesn't appear in this story that God had raised up Deborah to be the judge. In fact, she wasn't the judge. She's called Deborah a prophetess. Why is she a prophetess? What's going on in the story? You see, I think the answer to that conundrum, brothers and sisters, is that whilst God was with Deborah, as she was a prophetess, she was not going to be the saviour that God was going to raise up to deliver Israel. No, in fact, there was another man who God had called to be raised up to be the deliverer of his people who wasn't doing his job. You see, that even adds more weight, doesn't it, to what Deborah saw the need of going amongst the ecclesial, well, going amongst the, the nation of Israel, because there was a vacuum and a need, and so all Israel was coming to her. She was judging Israel, but she wasn't the judge. No, no, Barak was the judge. God had called him, but he was failing to stand up in his responsibilities. Whilst God had already called Barak. Due to a lack of courage and a lack of leadership, he'd failed to respond to the call. And you know, we're going to see how Deborah encourages and empowers and inspires Barak to demonstrate this true leadership. So here we go, verse 6. And so she sent, and she called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh, Naphtali. Barak, his name, he's the commander, right? His name means lightning. His father, his father was Abinoam. He's the father of pleasantness, or my father is delight. So he's, he's a spiritual man who was living in a very interesting place. He's from Kadesh, Naphtali. And, and we're given the extra detail because there were many Kadeshes in the land of Israel. It's Kadesh in Naphtali. And Kadesh means well, the sanctuary in Naphtali means wrestlings. And perhaps the reason we're given the detail was because Barak of the tribe of Naphtali lived in a sanctuary. And it was more of a sanctuary than most. So what's remarkable about this city, Kadesh Naphtali, is we're going to see a man who was growing up within the walls of a city that was more than just any normal city. And he's wrestling with his responsibilities. Do you know what Kadesh Naphtali was, brothers and sisters? We know from Joshua chapter 20 and verse 7 and chapter 21 verse 27 that Kadesh Naphtali was a city of refuge. A Levitical city of refuge where the priests lived. Oh, that gives us a little bit more insight into this man's background and into his experience that he should have or would have got. 
See, he was a man who grew up within the walls of a city of refuge, a sanctuary from the world where, where it was supposed to be full of Levites who were expounding the word of God and the law. You see, and yet Barak here is wrestling with the responsibilities of the calling that God called him to. He was not showing the leadership qualities required of him to lead God's people to victory. You see, we can grow up, can't we, brothers and sisters, in ecclesias where the word of God is expounded with clarity and enthusiasm. But, brothers and sisters and young people, it has to go past our ears and touch our hearts for us to actually change and mould and grow. See, Barak's wrestling with his responsibilities. You see, he wasn't coming to seek judgment from Deborah either. She has to send a request to him. Look what it says. Verse 6. She sent and she called Barak, the son of Abinoam of Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, um, Hath not Yahweh Elohim of Israel commanded, saying, well, they're words of fairly strong significance, aren't they? We'll come back to that. Hath not Yahweh Elohim of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun? Question. Haven't God commanded them? Do you know it's in the, it's in the perfect tense? Hasn't God already completely asked you to do a job? <laughs> He's already commanded. <laughs> What's she actually saying to Barak in this message, brothers and sisters, was a powerful, loaded message to Barak. Think about it. What's she actually saying to Barak? Well, how did she know that God had already said something? Well, she's a prophetess. Barak, pretty confident that God's already told you this. I'm a prophetess, Barak. I know God's already spoken to you about your job. Perhaps she was the one that even delivered it to him. Don't know. But she knew that God had already asked him. More than that, God has already already asked you. I'm speaking on his behalf. This is a reminder Barak. And by the way, God's request wasn't a suggestion. Hasn't Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, commanded? Oh, this is powerful. God's given you a commission, Barak. Ignore that at your peril. And this is from the words of a prophet or a prophetess. Remember Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 19? I will raise up a prophet among their brethren, like unto thee. This is God talking to Moses. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak unto them all that I command him. And it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. It was pretty strong words. If you don't listen to the prophet or the prophetess, you're going to lose your life. And notice the title that she uses, Yahweh Elohim 
of Israel. Oh, that title was the title of God's memorial name. It's synonymous with the covenants that he'd made to the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The title name of the promises, the covenant that demonstrate that he would never forget those. Oh, God's given you a commission, Barak. I ain't going to let you go. It's not an option. What are you doing? And the record wants to paint a picture of a remarkable leader in Israel, but it won't Barak. It's Deborah. And look at how she approaches Barak to inspire him to step up and to demonstrate his leadership responsibilities and his role. Here's some lessons for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Look at this. What could she have done? Well, Deborah could have, option one, taken control herself. Well, look, Barak, you can't even captain a one-man kayak, right? So you need to actually, you're just useless, Mate, let me, look, stand aside, stand away, just forget you've even been asked this, let me have a go. Look, we can't be waiting, you're just, you're too slow, you're not there. Just leave it with me, I've got, it. I've got this covered. I'll get this sorted out. You're just useless. Because she could have taken control. Right, let's get these 10,000 men, let's get this on the road, let's get this inheritance seized, let's get on with it. No, she doesn't do that. You see, and whilst it might have been more efficient, it would have been far less effective. You know, just wouldn't work. Oh, she she could have she could have given him option number two. <laughs> What's option number two? Oh, let me give you a piece of my mind. She could have given him the tongue bashing. You know, you've already been told once before. What's wrong with your son? I mean, honestly, how many times does God have to tell you before you get going? You're incompetent, man. Pull your socks up. Have a concrete pill. Harden up. Get going. She could have given him a piece of her mind. And it might have made Deborah feel better. But any action from Barak would have been out of fear. She doesn't do that either. Look what she does. Instead, Deborah recognises that God had already called Barak. And she realised that Barak was struggling with the enormity of the responsibility and the task that, had been called, that God had called him to. And so she coaches him. And she uses a simple formula that pretty much all parents use, or ideally, ideally use, <laughs> when working with their children. Look, and it's the way God works with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. Look, look at what she does. So she calls Barak aside. She sent him calls for Barak. See, she doesn't have a public conversation in front of everybody. No, no, she, she calls him aside to have a discussion in person in private. First thing. Second thing. She doesn't tell him what to do, does she? No, no, she, she asks a question. She phrases a question to understand what the issue is rather than making an incriminating statement. You know, God does that with Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't he? What does he do in the garden? We're out there. What is it that thou hast done? You see, God uses a coaching model to try and help understand. He knew what had gone wrong, but he wants a confession and wants acknowledgement so that they might understand what the issues are to work through the problem. So, see, she, she questions or frames the issue as a question because she wants to understand what the challenges are that he's facing. And then, step three, she reminds him of his responsibilities and the plan as previously laid out. Mate, God's already 
given you a responsibility and a, and a, and a, and a thing. You, ne- you need to get on with it. And then she reassures and encourages him that God would be with him. She reassures him. But didn't God say that to go and do this and that, that verse 7, I will draw unto thee the river Kishon, Sisera and the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots, and I will deliver him into thine hand? Didn't, didn't God give you the message that he was going to deliver you? It was all going to be done? Like, this is all good. Don't worry. God's got to be there to help. You see, she calls him aside in private, asks a question, reminds him of his responsibilities, reassures and encourages him that God would be with him, and coaches him into action by carefully and gently assisting him to be reassured of God's purpose and the need for Barak, therefore, to respond, knowing that God would protect him. And in here, brothers and sisters, lies some fantastic lessons for us when it comes to working with each other. No surprises, is there? You know, inspiring each other, regardless of our circumstances, requires careful and prayerful intervention and action. When working with each other, I think the first thing we have to start with is, is to never assume anything. Even when you think you might know the answer, asking questions really helps. You see, shooting first and asking questions later, you don't get too many answers from dead people. So, so not assuming and asking questions is really important. Seek first to understand before seeking to be understood is a really good formula to think. Try and think about that. What are we, what are we, let's work, walk in someone else's shoes. Let's try and understand what's going on. You see, people come from all sorts of backgrounds. Nothing operates in a vacuum. We all have our own experiences. We all have our own challenges and hang-ups and problems that we're all working through or endeavouring to bury. Nothing ever happens in or in, alone or in isolation. So seeking to understand the problems so that together we can find the answers has got to be the answer when it comes to challenges in a collegial life. You see, for Bayrak, brothers and sisters, he needed reassurance to have someone hold his hand. That was it. I need someone to go with me. It was an easy fix. Can you come with me? Yeah, I'll come. Cool. Can we go now? Yep. It was a simple fix. Bayrak needed reassurance. That's exactly what happened. See, often the solutions are quite easy once the challenges are properly understood. We can navigate together the way around them. So never assume, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Second lesson, try to be outcome-orientated in our discussions. No such words, orientated. Oriented. Be outcome-oriented. You see, prior to any discussion, if we actually took the time to think about what the outcome is that we're actually trying to achieve, that when we're in the middle of conversations, we can keep coming back to, what are we actually trying to achieve with this person? What's the outcome we need to do? You see, Deborah, Deborah wanted Barak to take the lead and to lead Israel. So she was outcome-oriented in her conversations. If, if you can think about how you can achieve the right outcomes rather than how you can win an argument, imagine how much more effective we would be. If we continue to focus on outcomes, we might actually change our approach when working with others. You see, for Bayrak, if Deborah had whipped him hard, Bayrak might have gone, but he could have chickened out at the end. 
So she carefully and deliberately asked questions to solve and understand an issue with a very clear motive, the motivate to motivate him and take the lead. That's what we want you to do. That's how Christ works. That's how Christ worked with others. Do you know, it might answer perhaps some things that might be looking on the surface to be totally inconsistent. You know, he works in John 3 with Nicodemus and gives him quite a stern talking to about his responsibilities as being a leader in Israel. You should know these things. Get on with it. And yet, almost a few chapters later in John 8, there's the woman caught in the act of adultery, and he's like soft because he was outcome oriented in the way, oriented in the way he worked with people. You see, Christ was, would work with all the individuals to achieve the best outcome for everyone without compromising the truth. You see, what Deborah was able to achieve by coaching Barak was such that she could help him understand his responsibilities, to show him the need for his leadership so that he would encourage and that he might motivate all the other people of Naphtali and Zebulun so that God's purpose might be fulfilled, so that Israel's enemies might be destroyed. She knew what the outcome was that was needed. And so she worked carefully. You know, there's also lessons for Deborah's and Barak's. We are always sometimes giving and other times receiving advice. There's lessons for taking and receiving advice. You see, if you're going to do a Deborah delivery, delivery, we have to show leadership without needing to be out the front. You see, Deborah's really happy to be behind the scenes and working in private. You see, true leaders truly seek to inspire others to achieve greater outcomes and reach their full potential without any claim of glory or self-fulfillment. You see, for Deborah's, it was about sacrifice and helping others achieve greater potential. And so when we work with others, if we're going to be the one giving advice, let's put the person first that we're working with so that they might understand how they can become better in their walk in the truth and they might achieve their full potential as God and Christ work in their lives to achieve the outcome of his purpose. And if we're receiving advice, if we're getting barracks, you see, <laughs> true leaders will listen to feedback from anyone, any source, doesn't matter who it is. And they listen without bias, and it often comes from their children, from their peers, from their spouse, and from elderly people. We've got to learn to be barracks and listen to advice because, well, they're always looking to continuously improve to develop personally. You see, we have to receive advice with an open heart, an open mind. You know, brothers and sisters, imagine what would happen in ecclesial life if we took or received advice that way. Imagine what would be advice if both sides delivered and received advice this way. See, Deborah was a fantastic example of a woman, a prophetess, who whilst not seeking for glory or preeminence, provided true leadership by seeking to motivate the one that Yahweh Elohim of Israel had called. She sought to inspire him to the task. Do you know, in so doing, she inspired a nation that followed him. You see, it was in this leadership vacuum and with this role, we can now begin to appreciate the title that Deborah gave herself. What was she called? Well, Deborah calls herself in Judges chapter 5 and verse 7. She says that leadership had ceased, as we've already seen. Chief or rulers had ceased until that I, Deborah, arose 
a mother in Israel. You see, Deborah saw herself as the nourisher, the supporter of Israel, the one that showed care, the one that would sacrifice. Isn't that the role that mothers play to provide for the needs of their families? See, she put all of them first beyond herself. She looked after them as a maternal mother, seeking the welfare of her children. This was her leadership style, brothers and sisters. And look at how powerful it was. So now we come back to asking the question, well, why did God call Barak in the first place? Well, Barak was of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh Naphtali, Right? He was of the area of Naphtali. He'd obviously respected by his tribe, but lacked on this occasion the faith and the courage to call together his tribe to fight Sisera and his army. There was 900 chariots of iron, for goodness sake. It's a nightmare. And it's, he's going to be sent to call the children of Naphtali and the children of Benjamin and 10,000 men. Why? Why was it going to be Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, you see... These tribes were the neighbouring tribes associated um, in that northern area that bore the brunt of Sisera's campaigns. In fact, most of the surrounding tribes were going to assist in the battle on that occasion. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh and Issachar are going to be all around the area of, um, that, that respond to the song and respond to the request to fight Sisera and his army and Jabin, king of Cayman. And the call, by the way, went nationwide to fight, but mainly the tribes that were affected most came. So God had called him because he was a leader, supposed to be a leader, and yet he was struggling with the enormity of the responsibility of the task. How often does that happen in ecclesial life, brothers and sisters? Heaps. We struggle with it. You may see that in Timothy. What was Timothy grappling with? With Paul, Paul's telling him, here's the man with responsibility, and he's struggling with the, with the work that he needs to accomplish. Here's Barak the same. Here's Gideon the same in the next, next chapter on. He's going to have the same challenges. But I want you to see the battle that was being set up and the comparison that God was trying to make. Verse 6, God says, Deborah says to him, look, God's already told you, go, see, get a coloured pencil and link these words, Right? Go draw towards Mount Tabor and take with thee 10,000 men, and I will draw unto thee, into the river Kishon, Sisera and his, and his army, right? So you go and draw 10,000 men, and I'll draw Sisera and all his men, and we'll have a challenge. We'll set up a challenge, and I'll be with you, and we'll kill him. On the surface, it might appear a good strategy to get up, to take 10,000 men and get to the top of a hill. And this guy's got chariots. It might appear to be a good strategy because you can always come down the hill to fight. It's usually a position of authority, but not when you're fighting chariots. You know what's remarkable about what God asked him to do? Militarily, it was ludicrous. Mount Table. What do we know about Mount Table? Here's a view from Mount Table. I haven't been there myself. So I rely on Google. Um, that's, that's Mount Table, and you can see all over the Jezreel Valley. It sits 400 metres high, or those of us that like feet, 1,200 feet. And it's a hill that really is just a cone-shaped hill that rises up at the end of an incredibly fertile Jezreel Valley. 
It, it was one of the most outstanding landmarks in, in the part of Israel because it holds a commanding view all the way down the valley and all the way out towards the Mediterranean and all down uh, the other side to the Sea of Galilee. You can almost see 365 degrees around from this mountain. But however majestic the view, it was a ludicrous position to be in from a military perspective. Why? Well, have a think about this. Sisera and his army had never really been able to capture or get individual people together because they were running through the goat tracks in the back country. And so when Bayrak comes and pulls together 10,000 men in one place, you can imagine how excited Sisera was. So Bayrak was to gather 10,000 men and to stick them up on the top of a mountain, totally isolated, easily, totally surrounded, fully exposed and vulnerable to siege and cut off, could easily be cut off from all possible help. That's how ludicrous that decision was. Cicero goes, you little beauty, let's have a go. So why is he told to get up there? Why to get up at the top of Mount Table? Well, the answer was obvious. God wanted Barak to learn to trust him. He was going to put him into a position of military challenge that without God, he was goner. And more than that, brothers and sisters, is that from this vantage point, God was going to show and to treat Barak and Deborah and to all his men the grandest military manoeuvring ever witnessed by man. 10,000 men were going to stand on top of a hill to see one of the largest parades of might and then to see them utterly destroyed. From here, Barak was going to witness every chariot, every horseman, every foot soldier that Sisera could muster, a parade which would stretch across the entire Jezreel Valley as he marches to meet Barak. And that he would learn that God would defeat them. Barak's a little bit hesitant. As you'd expect, he's the hesitant commander. Verse 8. Here's, here's Deborah. So Barak says unto her, Okay, if thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. You see, you colour in that expression, go with me, with me. I Surely I will go with thee. And so he went, verse 9, with Barak to Kadesh. She went with Barak to Kadesh. And Deborah, it says, verse 10, went up with him. See, they were going to have to work together. She wanted De Deborah's presence as God's representative to be with him. It wasn't going to be good enough, as far as he was concerned, that God would deliver Sisera into his hand. He needed the reassurance and the association of having God with him. But by requesting Deborah to go with him, he was re revealing his trust deficiency, wasn't he, brothers and sisters? His request for Deborah to go with him was going to come with a trade-off. Because you don't quite trust me, says Deborah, verse, or God, Deborah says, verse 9. She said, surely I will go with thee, 
Notwithstanding the journey that thou takest, well, it won't be for your honour. You're not going to claim this victory, for Yahweh shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. The journey's not going to mean for your honour. He's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You see, before, Yahweh was going to deliver him into thine hand, says verse 7. I'll deliver into thine hand, says God. But because you have this trust deficiency, well, the trade-off is going to be you don't get the glory of this battle. He's going to now sell it into the hand of a woman. You see, link those two thoughts and ideas. I'll deliver him to thine hand. No, you've got a trust deficiency. He's going to be sold into the hand of a woman. You see, whilst Barak believed that God would be with Deborah, he failed to understand that God was already with him. And for that, God would show Barak that although he would have 10,000 men, God would ultimately destroy Sisera with the one person that he didn't have, a woman. And God would be with her. God would work with her. He could work with anyone. But because you don't trust me, that's going to be my proof. My proof is that I will work with anyone, says God. It's going to be sold into the hand of a woman. Question, who do you think Barak thought that woman might be? The answer, brothers and sisters, I thought he thought it would be Deborah. It wasn't going to be that way. 10,000 men on a hill and a woman and sold into the hand, Deborah. And he thought that the victory was going to come from Deborah. And, you know, it's going to come from the one place he'd least expect. And it was going to be a journey. A journey. This is a journey of realization and discovery. The journey won't be that thou takest won't be for your honor. It was a journey of him to learn a path of discovery and realization that God would be with him. What started as Barak needing reassurance was going to culminate in incredible faith as he leads his men to victory. It was going to be a journey of faith. But it starts with a question. Will you come with me? And she does. And so they go. Verse 10 says, So Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went with him. You see, it was going to be a community that would go with them. It's a remarkable, isn't it? He's a leader who stands up, and because Deborah's at his side, 10,000 men join forces to go up Kadesh, go up Mount Tabor. And so they go up with him. And they're on foot, we know that. 5 verse 15 says that they were all on foot. And so, verse 11 and 12, he with the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, which had severed himself from the Kenites, pitched his tent in the plain of Zanaim, and, and which was in Kadesh. We'll leave that verse. We'll come back to that in our exhort tomorrow. They showed that Sisera, they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him. So he, Sisera is sitting at home, and he gets the news, a knock on the door. Barak's gone up in Mount Tabor. 10,000 men. You can imagine it. Barak's sitting on the couch, feet up, newspaper, right? Coffee in his hand, reading, reading current events. And all of a sudden, the news turns up. 
Bayrak scattered an army. They've gone around the table. And you can imagine Sisera slamming the paper down. Bang, you little beauty. And he just grabs whatever he can find. And Massa, you've got to be joking. What a nutcase. Let's go. And so he's off the couch, quick as a wink. Now's our chance. We can wipe them out once and for all. This is the, this is the golden moment. Thank you. Let's go. And the people have been avoiding all the public places. There's 10,000 in one spot. Here he goes. Bayrak's just committed strategic military suicide. Massive military mistake. And Sisera gathers everyone he can find. All hands on deck. Look what it says. So Sisera, it says, verse 13, gathers together, and here's your key expression, all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him. And there's your, there's your contrast. Right? All the people that were with him. Here's Bayrak and all the people that were with him. And they go from Harasheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. That's how long the, the command was. He gathers everyone he can, everyone on deck. It's going to be a showdown. The showdown was going to happen on this occasion. Barak calls Naphtali and Zebulun. Sisera gathers together. It's the same word in the, in the Hebrew. The, the calling of the men and the gathering together of his army. They marshal 10,000 and Sisera gathers everyone he can. The ultimate showdown. It was an all-in bet. The winner takes all. All his chariots, all the people with him. Do you know, it suggested that, that in, it, um, from, from historians that write about this time that Sisera would have had, if he had 900 chariots of iron, he probably would have had 300,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen. 900 chariots of iron, 300,000 footmen, and 10,000 horsemen. You think this about this in sight. He's on top of Mount Table, brothers and sisters, watching this parade. And Deborah and Barak and the men of Naphtali and Zebulun are going to witness the, one of the world's greatest military parades of all time as Sisera and all his army march down the Jezreel Valley to the river Kishon. Sisera, meaning battle array, and here he is living up to his name, arrayed beautifully as he marches down the valley, his eyes transfixed on Mount Tabor, his brilliantry military brain working overtime as he hatches a plan to get rid of these pesky Israelites out of his territory for once and for all. And as Sisera and his men reach the river Kishon, look at what Deborah says, verse 14. Up, get up. For this is the day in which Yahweh hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not Yahweh gone out before thee? See, this is the day which Yahweh hath delivered into Sisera into thine hand. Yahweh hath delivered him into your hand. And the word is in the past tense. He's already given him. Look at what she says. God has already given him into thy hand. Has not Yahweh gone out before thee? What did she mean by that, brothers and sisters? Hasn't Yahweh already gone out before thee? Well, here's what Deuteronomy 9 verse 3 says. Well, have, have a look. Deuteronomy 9 verse 3, turn it up. Here's, here's, what, here's what God Said, or Moses said about what God would do. Deuteronomy 9, verse 3. Look what it says. Hear, O Israel, verse 1, thou art to pass over Jordan, 
this day to go and possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities greater and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakim whom thou knowest and, and, and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore, says Moses, that Yahweh thy God is he which goeth goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, he shall bring them down before thy face, so shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as Yahweh hath said unto them. What does she mean, brothers and sisters? Hasn't Yahweh already gone out before thee? You see, I think, brothers and sisters, is what Deborah was saying was, well, as Moses had instructed that when they were about to pass over to the promised land, they would realize that Yahweh would go and destroy them. And they already had. God had already destroyed them. Therefore, so shalt thou drive them out. Yahweh already has done that. Today's the day. You've got the opportunity to finish the job. You can go and do this. This is the, this is the opportunity that your parents' generation failed to capitalize on. That's the job. God had already taken with Joshua in the military campaigns. Now you can finish it because they didn't, says Deborah. Get going. You see, this was their opportunity to finish the job that their parents had failed to do. Get going, she says. Yahweh's already gone out before thee. This is now your chance to finish. So perhaps that's what she meant. And there's another way in which I think she meant. You see, because Yahweh had physically gone out before them. He was going to, God was going to witness and show Barak exactly what was going to come up and destroy them. You see, because as Sisera and his men rolled down that valley, they wouldn't see what was coming up behind them. Because behind them, Barak and his men could witness a huge storm brewing so that the dust cloud of Sisera's army paled into insignificance as the bank of storm clouds raced up the hill country of Judah. And as Barak and his men charged down from Mount Tabor, the storm that was coming up behind Sisera and his men knocked them off their feet and exploded with terrifying force. Look at what it says. So Deborah says, So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him, and Yahweh discomforted Sisera and all his chariots. Well, what was happening behind him? What was the discomfort? Well, turn over the page of Judges chapter 5 and look at verse 20. So the kings came and fought, verse 19, then fought the kings of Canaan, in Tanak, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera, and the river of Kishon swept them away. The ancient river Kishon. Oh, my soul, she says, thou hast trodden down strength. And what happened on that day was that the rain and the hail fell into torrential proportions with the force of the wind blowing horizontally into the approaching army like lightning bolts, completely destroying them and blinding them. The sky was filled with flashes of forked lightning bolting across the heavens with thunderous explosions as God revealed his presence, a piece of his majesty. We know that. Look what it says in verse 4 of Judges chapter 5. Yahweh 
when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped with water. It looked so much that the mountains melted from before Yahweh. Even that Sinai from before Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. You see, if they'd been alive at the time of Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, it would have all felt familiar, says Deborah. It would totally be deja vu. You see, the earth would tremble. It was made like, to, like waves. The word trans, trans, um, translated as the word to shake or shook. It was, it was like an earthquake, but it was moving like waves. Right? It was just water moments, and the heavens just dropped. The thunder and lightning would descend. The clouds would just drop and melt water to the point where it looked like the mountains were just melting, overflowing, the rain just bursting from the, from the um, hilltops. You see, and just like in Exodus chapter 19, and verse 16, when the Israelites were terrified, and Moses says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, I exceedingly feared and quaked, his knees knocked together for, for fear. So was the battle of epic proportions as Yahweh unleashed upon Sisera and his men a torrent of his water and his majesty as the heavens exploded in their face. And so it was that as Barak and his men tore down Mount Tabor, Yahweh unleashed his rage upon Sisera. And you know what it says? Look what it says, verse 15. Yahweh discomforted him and all his chariots. So that's a fascinating word to use, brothers and sisters, young people. He discomforted him. Do you know what word? Means to put into commotion. To put into total disarray. What did Sisera mean, brothers and sisters, young people? Sisera meant battle-like array. This is the man who was the military strategist, who put everything in order, and God just totally undoes him. Puts him into, discomforts him. Put into complete disarray, and Sisera is totally outclassed. So how did this happen? Well, I'll just read an excerpt that I wrote because I, I like to just sort of get descriptive and to, to sort of paint the picture if you hadn't worked that out. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it's the Greek. Um, here's, here's piecing together Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. And I just want you to just close your eyes for a minute or just, just maybe stare at the screen in the picture and just think about this as you get the story. So the storm system as it approached Mount Table, just burst open. Torrential rain cascades down, rapidly turning the entire area into a complete mud bath. As Sisera and his chariots and his horsemen march forward, the cloud burst, accompanied by hail, driven by the wind, screams straight through the advancing hordes, forcing them to slow. Meanwhile, the water cascades off the hill, continues to stream down the mountains and into the valleys, which then begin to flow together and flood the plain, and Sisera and his chariots sink into the rich, fertile soils of Jezreel, unable to move forward anymore. 
The lightning thunder and the earthquakes completely spooked the horses, causing them to rear up and bolt in their terror and in their madness. They thrashed about, slipping out of their harnessing, tangling themselves into such a mess. Halters, bridles, saddles everywhere. In panic, they trampled soldiers, footmen, themselves breaking bones and killing the men and themselves. And now Sisera and his army stands still. What was a moving motion now stood still. And it's at that moment, Barak and his men hit, the, hit them with full force. And the battle is hand-to-hand combat. And it's every man for himself. This whole battle now is on foot. And still the floodwater came as Sisera's men turned to flee. The mud slows their retreat and Barak and his men hard on their heels gave chase. And so in verse 16 it says that Sisera and his men fled for home. Barak pursues after the chariots and after the host, under Harasheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. There was not a man left. They fled for Harasheth of the Gentiles. Thompson's land in the book says this, that as they scattered, fleeing for home, they raced back down the Jezreel Valley, following the river. And on their right hand, your right hand, was the swollen riven Kishon and the marches of Thora. They had no alternative but to make for a narrow pass which would take them by the river unto Harasheth. The space river becomes more and more narrow until within the pass there's only a few rods wide, only 20 metres wide. And the horses and whatever was left of them and the remaining men all mixed in this horrible confusion, jostling and treading one another down as they raced for Harasheth. The river, obviously deeper and swifter than anywhere before, runs zigzagging from side to side of the vale, just up until it reaches the castle of Harasheth, where it dashes itself up against the perpendicular base of Carmel and around the corner. And there was absolutely now no longer any possibility of avoiding it. Rank upon rank of flying hosts plunged madly into the river, causing those behind it crashing deeper and deeper into the tenacious mud on the banks of that river. And there they stuck fast, overwhelmed, and are swept away by their thousands. Deborah sings, the river Kishon, she says, oh, that river Kishon swept them away. The river Kishon, O oh my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Judges 5 verse 21. You see, that's how God would go with them. And so complete was the devastation and the destruction. Verse 16 says that there was not a man left. And you cannot miss the parallel to Joshua 11, can you? That's what Joshua had done with Jabin, king of Canaan, number one. And here on this battle, they took out Sisera and all his men, and there was not a man left. Not until one man left. His entire army, uh, sorry, army, everything he had, chariots, horses, everything, wiped out. Judges 11 verse 8, put that on your margin. They smote them until they left none remaining. Do you know, that was the promise. That was the, what was required of them. Deuteronomy chapter 20 says that but of the cities of these people which Yahweh your God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them. And so they finish and fulfill exactly what Moses had asked on this occasion. 
they took the opportunity, brothers and sisters, to finish the job. Barak and his men knew that the only reason they were having to fight them now was because their parents had not. And so they wanted to complete the mission. Their parents had failed so many years before. Joe, brothers and sisters, that's the lesson from tonight, isn't it? You see, true leadership is outcome-oriented. And more than that, it has both the vision and the tenacity to see things through to the end. You see, we have to become completer finishers in the truth. Leadership is not demonstrated by starting something in earnest, but finishing it as well. You see, it requires us to follow through with the discipline and the tenacity on resolutions that we make long after the spirit in which we made those resolutions has passed. That's true leadership, isn't it? A completer finisher. It's easy to give up, but to do that and to finish, we have to look at why we decided we needed to do things and finish the jobs we begin. It's too easy to give up. We've got to not only win each battle, but ultimately we've got to keep our focus and attention in order to win the war. But brothers and sisters and young people, whilst it says that there was not a man left or that there was only unto one, not everything was destroyed. One person had positioned themselves for a rapid retreat just in case things went wrong. Sister was a brilliant military strategist. Always had plan B, the escape plan. But brothers and sisters and young people, God had prepared something extra special for Sisera. And his his destiny awaited as he exited stage left. Do you know why, brothers and sisters? Well, God had pegged him for destruction and he got completely nailed. in our story and maybe just to recap what what we intend to do this morning is spend some time and have a look at the story of Jael right the wife of Heber the Kenite we're going to have a look at the the rather gruesome story I suppose of the way in which she decides to nail Sisera to the floor and in our considerations we want to appreciate I suppose as we get into that story of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in how he accomplished his work in putting to death the cr- and crushing the serpent's head. So just a, a recap as we get into the story. We've, we've come to a realisation and an understanding, as both Barak and Deborah did, of the oppression of Jabin and Sisera, and the fact that that had come as a result of the people's faithlessness and turning to idolatry and worship. And that had come, as we saw in our first session, as a result of the parents' failure to transfer the truth and a failure of the children to personalise the truth for themselves. And as a result, there was a complete leadership vacuum that now occurred across the nation as they failed to seize their inheritance and remove the Canaanites out of their land that they had been allotted to by inheritance. And as a result, we saw 20 years of oppression that was there to turn the nation's heart back to God 
in seeking deliverance. And we saw into that leadership vacuum that Deborah, the mother of Israel, the nation's prophetess, comes to give sweet honey counsel to those that sought judgment. And we saw her carefully coach Barak and inspire him to a role that he was hesitantly not fulfilling. The judge that God had raised up that wasn't doing his job, and yet with careful coaching and support, she inspires him to take the lead. And in so doing, he inspires the rest of the nation to come and overthrow Sisera and their enemy and the army. And we watched as Barak and 10,000 men committed what would have been military suicide on foot, running down, charging off Mount Tabor with swords like toothpicks to a, toothpicks to a gunfight with, and wipe out Sisera and his entire army. And we witnessed as Yahweh responded to that leadership and that faithfulness as he unleashed upon Sisera and his army as he opened the heavens and dropped and flooded the Jezreel Valley, halting Sisera's advance right in their tracks, enabling Barak and his men to take them on, hip and thigh, smoke them close hand-to-hand combat until they wiped them out, chasing them all the way back to Harasheth of the Gentiles in the mud until there was not a man left, or so they thought. And so we pick up now the story in Judges chapter 4, and verse 16. And it says, But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. And as Barak picked through the destruction of the battlefield, he was looking for one man. One man was what he was interested in, but he was nowhere to be found. Because in the confusion of the battle, Sisera had lighted off his chariot and quietly and elusively had slipped away unnoticed as he sped away on foot. And naturally, Barak assumed that Sisera would be amongst the chariots and the host as they raced for heresy to the Gentiles, but he wasn't. This was a military strategist, the man who put everything in array and he activated plan B as he escaped out the side and running like the wind as fast as his legs could carry him He was running in the entirely different direction to the nation. All his men were running to Harasheth of the Gentiles, but no, not Sisera. Sisera was on his way to the entirely opposite direction, to Heber and Jael's tent who lived in the plain of Zanaim. He was running to that place. Why? Why did Sisera think that that would be a good idea? Well, first reason is, well, it was the entirely opposite direction to everybody else, right? First lesson. So he was running from where everyone else would naturally assume he was going. But if we read the record carefully, verse 17 says that he was running there because there was an agreement that he had and he was running to a specific location. Look what it says in verse 17. Howbeit, Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. He was running to a specific location. He wasn't running to catch up with Heber. He was running to catch up into the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Why would Sisera run here? Well, interestingly enough, there is a custom in Israel with respect to the woman. So women in Israel had their own tent for their own things, something we try to avoid nowadays. 
Well, everything's hers anyway, right? So, so he's on his way to, his, to, to Heber's tent. We know, look, look at history, we don't have time to turn there, but you know, Isaac brought Rebekah to his mother's Sarah's, or to his mother Sarah's tent, right? Genesis 24. And we know always in the story when we look at Genesis 18 and the Song of Solomon that they had their own tent. Only men that were allowed in that tent was the father or the husband of that woman. And therefore, if you were searching for a man, you certainly wouldn't go looking for them in a woman's tent. That was totally off off the record, off, no, out of bounds. But what we also know, <clears throat> is what it says in verse 17, is it says there was more than just the fact that there was a tent that he could go to that people wouldn't look for him. There was a peace accord between Jabin, king of Canaan, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And we're now introduced in the story to two people who are integral to the story, Heber the Kenite, and Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Isn't it an interesting expression? Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. It's the title that gets given of her all the time. Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And you think, wow, there's something important about this man, Heber the Kenite. We're given his origin. We're given his name. Why? The records at pains to remind us who he was and where he came from. And the title that gets given him to distinguish him from every other Heber that might exist. He's called Heber the Kenite. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, what, what do we know about Heber the Kenite? The answer to that, brothers and sisters, is actually quite a lot. So Heber, his name means a community. Comes from the root word meaning a house in common. The idea of fellowship. So the Kenites were a community of people who had fellowship in their, in, in their environment with themselves. And what we notice about this man, when we go back to Judges chapter 4, verse 11, is that this man had severed himself from the Kenites. Verse, verse 11 of Judges 4. And he'd gone instead, taking, picking up his tent and relocating it up into the north, into the, into the plain or the oaks of Zanaim. This man had separated himself from his family, from his own community, from those he had fellowship with, from the rest of the Kenite families, to seek fellowship with another community. Was that a bad move? Should he have done it? What do we know? Why had Heber moved? Brothers and sisters. Well, firstly, perhaps it's helpful if we spend some time to look at the history and the origins of the Kenites. And this is a study in its own right. But we want to spend five minutes to summarize the family of the Kenites because we actually know quite a bit about the Kenites. So, who were the Kenites? Well, first of all, we know that Hobab, who was the son of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, had a lot to do with Moses. Hobab was the father of the Kenites. Jethro was, the, was the, the leader of the family, but Hobab was his son. But what we know is, is that Moses had originally sought refuge in Jethro's house in Exodus chapter 2 when he fled Egypt and he ran into Midian. And there we know he tended for Jethro's flocks. 
in Horeb for 40 years. And Moses then marries one of Jethro's daughters in Exodus chapter 2. And Moses leaves Zipporah and his two sons in Jethro's care when he goes back to Egypt and then meets up with the family when they go back to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 18. And so what we know about the Kenites is that there are nomadic family that lived in Midian in the desert. And what we know about Jethro was is that Jethro embraced the hope of Israel. He rejoiced in their deliverance from, from Egypt and offered burnt offerings and sacrifices with the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 18 and verses 9 to 12. And actually Jethro offers enormous amount of support to Moses in the wilderness to help him with the administration of the nation to try and alleviate Moses' pressure of all the workload that he had to do. Because he watched Moses as he tried to manage the nation's affairs and their needs in Exodus chapter 18 and gives sound advice to Moses. But Moses turned to Hobab, Jethro's son, who was journeying with them from Mount Sinai and says to him, well, come with me now to Numbers chapter 10. I want to show you what happens in the story to the Kenites. Numbers chapter 10. Here's Moses having a conversation with with Jethro, uh, with Hobab. Numbers chapter 10 and verse 29. So here they go, verse 28, they went on their journeyings. Numbers 10, verse 28. The journeyings of the children of Israel according to the armies when they set forward. So they're on their way as in the wilderness. And Moses turns to Hobab, the son of Ragul or Jethro, Raguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. So this is Jethro, but this is his son, Hobab. And he says to Hobab, look, we are journeying unto the place of which Yahweh said, I will give it you. So we want you to come, come there with us, and we will do thee good. Come out of the land of, of the, the wilderness of Midian and come, and come and join us, he says. And we will do thee good, for Yahweh hath spoken good concerning Israel. And Hobab on that occasion said to him in verse 30, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And Moses pleads with him, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. You can be watchmen for us, to look out for us, and it shall be, if, if you go with us, yea, it shall be, that what goodness Yahweh shall do unto us, the same Will we do unto thee? Moses pleads for them to be the eyes for them. Tuck that away, by the way. He wanted them to be the eyes for the nation of Israel, to be watchful, to help them. We're going to find that those eyes sell um, Barak and his men out. And so what we find about the Kenites, they were nomads in the desert. They knew the desert like the back of their hands. And we know from Numbers 10 is, is that Hobab initially refuses to go with the nation of Israel. However, what we do know, brothers and sisters, is, is that subsequently he reconsiders. Because we find the Kenites in Judges chapter 1. Come with me now to Judges chapter 1. Here they come. Because Hobab must have reconsidered. He, he was torn. He wanted to be with his family in his own land. However, we find in Judges chapter 1, they must have changed their view because in Judges chapter 1, in the story of the subjugation of the inheritance of Judah, it says in verse 16 of Judges chapter 1, it says, And the children 
of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth to the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. You see, initially Hobab must have refused, but subsequently the family reconsiders, and the Kenites come on the journeyings with the children of Israel and receive an inheritance allotment amongst the tribe of Judah, whilst they still maintain their independence as their own community in a wilderness. And so they relocate into the wilderness in the south of Arad. But it says they fellowshiped, it says, with the children of Judah. And so what we can summarize out of the story is, is that they were a God-fearing people. They wanted to be there. They wanted to have close ties now with the nation of Israel to receive the ongoing blessings of the fellowship that was promised to them in the land of promise. And we know that they were to be the eyes, the watchmen for the nation of Israel. It's remarkable, brothers and sisters, when you trace this family through history. They were an incredible, faithful family. And we know the following things about this family of the Kenites. And 260 years after their establishment in, in the area of Judah and the, during the time of Barak, after that in the time of Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15 says that the Kenites were faithful to Israel and they were spared destruction because of the tight relationship that they had with the nation of Israel during the time of Saul. And 290 years later, in the time of David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, this family became known as the Rechabites, those that were known for being the scribes amongst the nation, the faithful Bible students that maintained an understanding of the law of Moses. And 450 years after this point, brothers and sisters, in the time of Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 10, in verse 15, the Rechabites were known for the keeping of the law and particularly for standing against apostasy and maintaining a pilgrim status amongst the nations that were there. And 740 years later, this faithful family in the time of Jehoiakim in Jeremiah chapter 35 are still there, remaining separate from apostate Judah who was gone astray, and they were, the Rechabites were still following the law, maintaining a steadfastness for the truth, showing the nation themselves far more faithful than the tribe they first had fellowship with. This was a remarkable family, brothers and sisters, that stood the test of time, who learnt the blessing of transferring the truth from generation to generation. That's the story of the Rechabites. That's the story of the Kenites. Now, brothers and sisters, come back to the story of Judges chapter 4. Now let's think about the decision that Heber makes to sever himself from that community. See, Heber, Heber and it's a great translation, by the way, had severed himself from this faithful family. This man had cut his ties from the rest of the Kenites living in the Negev desert in the south. And where had he gone? The answer is he had gone to re-establish himself and his family in the northern parts 
of Israel and the oaks of Zanaim. Zanaim was on the border of the inheritance of Naphtali, about four kilometers south of Kadesh Naphtali, and about 12 k's from Mount Tabor. They had totally left the Negev and were living in the north. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why had this man moved? Why had he changed his alliances and his allegiances? Was it for better climate? Was nicer weather? Or was it a better environment for him? Or did he have a falling out with his family? We're not told, brothers and sisters, except for this. One can't miss the Bible echo, can you? With another man that moved for another reason and for economic decisions. You see, I believe, brothers and sisters, we are given this very pattern to try and help us understand why he severed himself. It's exactly the same word in the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 13 and verse 11, where Lot severs himself from the faithful family of Abraham. And both of these men go and re-pitch their tents toward a plain. And both make peace with the new surrounding families. Lot had separated himself for Abraham, we know, for an ease of lifestyle. It was just like the water of Egypt. You could kick it with your foot and the water would come. It was amazing, green everywhere, the fertile pastures. It was remarkable. He moved for economic prosperity to the rich soils of the plain of Sodom. That's why Lot moved. It was an economic decision for Lot, a better lifestyle. And it was no different, brothers and sisters, I believe, for Heber. Do you know why, brothers and sisters, I suggest that? I suggest Heber moved for employment. And here's the proof. Do you know what the word Kenite means in the Hebrew? It's the word for smith. The word for a metal worker. The word that's used to describe an artificer of metal. Now, what we know, therefore, is, is that the Kenites were a group of nomadic metal workers. Now, here's the question. Where do you think the employment opportunities were in Israel at this current point in time for metal workers? Well, what we know, brothers and sisters, is Judges 5 verse 8 says that they chose new gods. There was war in the gates. Was there a shield or a spear seen amongst the 40,000 in Israel? There was not much work needed for fitted and turners amongst the nation of Israel at this current point in time, was there? No, no, where the employment lay was with the guy that owned 900 chariots of iron. I believe he had relocated up north for a more prosperous life, more money, better career prospects, and note, brothers and sisters, no fear of attack. Why? Because verse 17 says, for some reason... There was a peace accord between Jabin, who was the king of the entire Canaanites, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Now, here's the question. <laughs> On what basis did little old Heber the Kenite have a peace agreement with Jabin, the mighty king of Canaan, who had subdued most of all the northern tribes of Israel and was on a first-name basis along with his wife, with Sisera, the captain of the army? 
You see, Heber's household had a protection policy, an insurance policy of peace. Now, Heber didn't have any more power. He didn't have a huge army. He didn't have any more money. But he had skills. He was a metal worker, a mechanical skills. And by the way, brothers and sisters, that might explain why jail was so easy to get his ha- her hands on a workman's hammer. You see, this peace agreement was made on the basis of trade, a mutual economic benefit. Quite possibly, Heber was the chief mechanic of Sisera's army based in Harasheth. Harasheth, the city of mechanics. You see, so here, this Kenite, who ought to have been the eyes, Israel's eyes, to protect them, had severed himself, brothers and sisters, from his brethren and switched allegiances. Verse 12 says, They showed that Sisera had they showed to Sisera that Barak had the son of Abinoam had gone up into Mount Tabor. They sold them out. He had been watching Barak and he'd, as he'd called for assistance, witnessed them amassing his supporters as he ascended Mount Tabor. Instead of watching out for Israel, he sold them out. See, Hebrew relocated for better economic lifestyle. He'd made a decision on the basis of better career prospects and employment. And in so doing, had relocated his wife and his entire family and severed himself from the fellowship of the faithful Kenites. Brothers and sisters, is a fantastic lesson for us in this, isn't there? You see, leaders should factor in all the costs. You see, employment is needed, we know, brothers and sisters, to eat. We have to maintain ourselves in this life. It's important to do our best in whatever we do. Remember, 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us very clearly that the pursuit or the love of money is the root of all evil. Everything in life comes at a cost, doesn't it? There are always opportunity costs, the next best alternative. And we have trade-offs. And that benefit is a challenge if it's going to destroy our family. You know, if we change jobs, we have to ask the question, what is it going to cost me? If I take that promotion, how much more travel might there be? With respect for employment generally, in my experience, more money comes with more responsibility, which usually means more stress and less time. That's why Timothy says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is the key. We've got to be so careful about our economic pursuits because it's so easy to lose sight of what we're actually here for and be caught up with, why, the cares of this life. We've got to factor in the opportunity costs in every decision that we make. And for Lot, well, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wife. He lost his happiness. He lost everything. He went for a better economic lifestyle and prosperity. He ended up as a hermit in a cave. He didn't factor in the opportunity cost, and neither did Hebrew brothers and sisters. Because Jael wasn't too happy about this decision. Back in the story, we know that because what it says, verse 17, Sisera. Sisera had dropped off his distinctive chariot. And in the confusion was running for his life 
in the opposite direction as fast as he could. His ultimate destination, no doubt, was most likely Hazor, Mummy's place, to find shelter and protection. Sisera's mother lived up in the castle in Hazor. He was sitting here in jail's tent until the, the, the challenge of the battle blew over, till the heat dissipated, that he might find shelter and protection and then sneak up to Hazor. And so heading for familiar ground with people he thought were allies, he strike out, strikes out for Heber's campsite, but particularly Jael's tent. <laughs> but if Sisera was seeking sympathy and safety, he put the wrong woman in the wrong tent on the wrong day. There's nothing soft about this lady. So he runs to Jael's tent. Who was Jael? Well, this woman had lived her life growing up as a nomad in the desert in tents. The Kenites were a hardy people. Her name means a mountain goat. These people lived in goatskin tents. She's going to serve Sisera goat's milk from a goatskin bottle and cover him with a goatskin blanket. She was the ultimate goat. And for Israel, she was the greatest of all time. On this day, you see... For everything she was, she was rugged and rough. She was used to the harsh elements and the living conditions of the blowing sands in the desert, the shifting of the wind. Her nomadic existence was all about enduring hardships and isolation. You know what's remarkable is that Heber and Jael stand together as antithesis of each other in what they stood for. If Heber lived on the plain, she was a mountain goat. If Heber wanted to make peace with the enemy, she was used to fighting for an existence. Heber was seeking for economic prosperity. She was used to hardships. And whilst he wanted a fellowship and coffees in the villages, she wanted isolation in the desert. One was a city slicker and the other was a nomad, brothers and sisters. What a family. And whereas Heber had made decisions for a better lifestyle, for more money and improved living, Jael wanted the opposite. She wanted her nomadic existence. She wanted to be in isolation without the complications of what this new life had brought. And whilst Heber had severed himself, brothers and sisters, from his brethren in pursuit of a better way of life, Jael obviously had not agreed. However, in submission, she'd gone. And whilst utterly repulsed by the treacherous peace accord, she obeyed and bided her time trying to encourage her husband by her way of life, as Peter calls it, to help her husband to return. And the time came for that opportunity. In verse 18 it says, As Sisera sped past them, Jael went out to meet Sisera. In the Hebrew it means to go out with intent. This was a deliberate action. Brothers and sisters, she recognized Sisera from a distance. And worried that he might run straight past, she decides to interact with him before any of the servants did. And so she comes out and she says to him, Turn in, my Lord, turn in to me, fear not. Turn in, my Lord, Adon, my ruler, she says. Term of respect. Come in here quick, quick. Come in, close it all. And carefully and deliberately, she encourages him to find sanctuary in her tent. This was her opportunity. You can just picture the scene, can't you? I mean, I, it's probably not too good to picture, but anyway, think about it. Sister's just run his skin off. 
right? Blood-stained, covered in mud, fatigued, sweaty, scared stiff. Probably the first time he's ever experienced a defeat like this, ever in his life. He's petrified. And here was a woman he knew whose allegiance he thought were clearly aligned with his. This was the family that had given him the tip-off in the first place. We'll find safety here. And here she was offering him shelter and safety in her tent. Why not? I'll lie low until the heat blows over. I'll recover strength and then I'll shoot for Hazel. And so he turns aside, and as he does so, she covers him with a mantle, a blanket. You see, she covers him. Only ever really floods in the Jezreel Valley in winter, so he can probably assume it's probably cold. He's probably shivering uncontrollably for the shock as the adrenaline's going to leave his system. And she covers him, not just to warm him, but to conceal him. And a mantle is a thick blanket. Any guesses what that might have been made of in this tent, brothers and sisters? Most blankets... For these people were goat skin and coarse goat's hair. And as he laid down, Sisera realized that he was absolutely parched. And, and he turns around to her and look at the language of respect. This is the rule, this is the um, uh, Sisera who ran the entire army for, for Jabin King of Canaan. And look at the words he uses to her. Oh, she, he says, Give me, I pray thee, a little water. It's the language of respect. He thought he'd totally found safety here. Can I please have a drink of water? She says, no, no, I can't give you water, but I can certainly give you cream. Not, not anything but the best for you. Water? Surely not. How about something a little bit more substantial? No, guess what type of milk nomadic tribes drink, brothers and sisters? And it's not cow. It's goat's milk. And she opens a new bottle. She gives him a new bottle of milk. It's made of goat skin, as the Gibeonites did in Joshua chapter 9. Milk specifically for the occasion. She gives him to drink and then she covers him again. Only the best for my Lord. Sister is in jail's territory and in her control. He was totally out of his depth and he had no idea. I'll give it more detail of what he gives her in chapter 5 and verse 25. Have a look over the page. Deborah's song, he asked, verse 25 of Judges 5, he asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordy dish. Butter is, is the word for curdled milk. It was, like, it was like yogurt. This wasn't just plain old milk. It was the best she could give for her lord. In a lordy dish, the dish of mighty nobles is what it means. A lordy dish. She pulled out the best china for this particular man. She wanted Sisera to feel that he was an honoured guest, a respected man of honour in her house, and that he was in good cans and good company. And in so doing, she lulls him into a false sense of security. But if it weary, Sisera has one more request. Look what she says. Verse 20, come back over the page. Judges 4, verse 20. Stand, he says, in the door of the tent, and if any man, if it shall be that if any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, is there any man here... Say no. So Sisera now having his fears removed, his adrenaline subsiding, the milk quickly working as a natural sedative on his heavily fatigued body, falls fast asleep in utter exhaustion. And Jael steps forward to seize her moment. She sees the opportunity to strike. And brothers and sisters, 
Read carefully what it says in verse 21. And you can't miss the import of the record, can you? Then jail Heber's wife. Why are we given the extra detail again? We already know she's Heber's wife. No, this, this decision and this action had something about his decision that he'd made. Oh, she wasn't happy with his decision. She's known as Heber's wife. And she goes and takes, notice, a hammer in her hand and a tent peg. Why, brothers and sisters? Why does she use a tent peg and a hammer? Well, just look at why she does it. This was a crime, brothers and sisters, of passion. This was a brutal murder, a premeditated murder on her part. She knew what she was going to use to destroy this man. She'd planned this moment in her head, had no idea when it was coming, and she saw the opportunity. She takes a tent peg and a workman's hammer, the two things that represented her nomadic existence and the tool of her husband's employment, the two things of her frustration, brothers and sisters. This was poetic retribution. The tent peg, a symbol of her canite Nomadic existence. You grab a colouring in pencil and you colour in how many times it says the word tent through chapter 4. They had pitched his tent, says verse 11, in the plain of Zanaim. Howbeit she fled on his feet, verse 17, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She turned into the tent. He turned into the tent, verse 18. Stand in the door of the tent, verse 20. She took a nail of the tent, says verse 21. You colour that in, you can't miss it. Chapter 5, verse 24 as well. Right? Blessed art thou of all women in the tent, says Deborah. Judges 5, verse 24. So she picked the tent peg because it represented her nomadic existence, where she lived and the frustration of relocation. And she took the workman's hammer, a symbol of her husband's employment. That's the word that gets used. Chapter 5, verse 26. A workman's Hammer, it says in verse 26. This wasn't to bash in tent pegs. This was a metal, metal working hammer, a, work, a, a hammer used for foundry work with metal. This is Heber's tools. You see, Jael chose to use these tools and implements to exact her fury and her revenge and her frustration on Sisera in retribution for the pain, the torment, and everything that this system had brought upon her and her family for Heber's severance from her Kenite family and her relocation away from the ones that she loved and had fellowship with in the hope of Israel. It had taken a huge toll on her. And she picks those two things to exact her premeditated revenge. And note what she does. Verse 21 says that she tiptoes into the bedroom and bam she smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground you know when we reconcile Judges 5 
What we see in the story is what actually happens was so fast and full of fury and an activity like you wouldn't believe, right? And it was a frenzied moment because what actually happened was she didn't just come out and balance the tent peg. This is not just a normal little tent peg that we have. This was a, a huge, whopping, great big wooden tent peg. So what happens in the story in Judges chapter 5 when we reconcile it is, is that Firstly, it says, so verse 26, she put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. This is Judges 5, verse 26. And with the hammer she smote Sisera, she smote his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. And in the Hebrew, brothers and sisters, this is how it describes it. She first hit him over the head with a hammer. And, and she hit him over the hammer with the purpose of to smite in pieces, to smite through. And then she smote him again to dash him in pieces and to pierce him and bore him through. That's really what it means in the Hebrew. To smite with a hammer, to smite in pieces, to smite or to dash in pieces, and to pierce and to bore through. So I think what we can reconcile in the story is that she first hit him over the head with a hammer, and as she did so, he reared up. And in panic moments, she hit him again and again, knocking him down. Then she grabbed the tent peg, balanced it on his head, and drove it to his temples, repeatedly hitting him in a frenzied attack until she was absolutely 100% convinced that he was gone because, well, his head was crushed. Only then did she stop hitting him. This was a frenzied attack, and there, lying at her feet, lay the man who she hated, Sisera, in his own blood, pinned to the floor. This was retribution of poetic form. Jail reenacted out, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Think about this. Jail reenacted out what the deceitful agreement and a bed lifestyle had done to her. You see, she felt pinned, she felt trapped, she felt crushed. She reenacts out what that piece of cord had done to her and her family. You see, whilst Jabin and Sisera's piece of cord and employment proposition had offered Heber the freedom and the opportunity to do what he wanted, to achieve what he needed, it had fastened and caused Jael to be pinned in a place she never wanted to be in the first place. And in her actions, she fulfills the prophecy of Deborah, doesn't she? Yahweh says, chapter 4 and verse 9, Deborah says, Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And it says in Judges chapter 4 and verse 21, she takes the hammer in her hand and destroys him. And she thrust him through the temples. Why are we given the detail of that? Why the temples? Why the detail? Well, firstly, and excuse probably the grossness of this, but... It was the easiest place to penetrate. It's the, fattest, uh, the flattest part of the head. It's right in the middle when you're sleeping on the side. It's the softest and thinnest part of the head. There's no bone to contend with. And so she firstly used the easiest place to drive it through. But the temples have a biblical significance. It's only used twice outside of this scenario in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 4 and ch verse 3 and chapter 6 and verse 7. The only two other times. And it's on both of those occasions, it's likened to a piece of pomegranate. It's red on the outside and white inside. You can understand why. The like 
and the likeness works. But inside a pomegranate, brothers and sisters, is a thing full of seeds. It's just like the brain. It's red on the outside, white on the inside, and full of seeds. And jail, well, jail attempted not only to destroy Sisera, but she wanted to destroy the thinking of Sisera. She wanted to destroy the seed of Sisera's serpent. She wanted to destroy everything about Sisera, his actions, his motives, his mentality, that it might no longer capture or might no longer dominate anyone else ever again. And she punched a teed peck through both temples that his brain might never escape. And she killed him in two stages, knocked him out first with a hammer and pegged him into the ground. Very similar when we go through the story of Daniel chapter 2, the smiting of the image on the feet and the crushing of it to powder, the story of David when he knocks him out with a stone and the cutting off of his head. There was, if we're ever going to overcome the enemy in ourselves, it requires us to be totally and utterly committed to destroying. Often it requires two stages to actually get it done. And she smote him on the head and then crushed his skull. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, on the battlefield, Barak realises that Sisera's escaped. And finding evidence of Sisera's subtle retreat, he sets off on foot. Verse 22, you can just, you have to picture the scene. And the record gives us a little bit of, you know, whenever you see key words like this, verse 22, and behold as Barak pursues, right? Whenever you see that, it's the Bible shouting at us. Behold, he says, as Barak pursues, out comes the corner of the tent, the flat door comes in. Oh boy, you want to see this side. You see, here comes a woman who goes out to meet now Barak. And as Jael steps away from Sisera's lifeless body and probably headless also, she hears Barak's noisy pursuit as she had with Sisera and goes out to meet him. You can link those. Jael went out to meet Sisera. Jael now goes out to meet Barak. And picture the scene. Barak comes around the corner and emerging from the tent stood a woman, the hammer probably still dangling from her hand, covered head to toe with blood and brain tissue, her hair wild, her eyes bloodshot, but humble in her victory. And look what she says. Come, and I will show thee the man whom you seek. First, there would have been the shock for Barak. Seeing jail in this state, the second shot was seeing Sisera and the murder scene, brothers and sisters. Sisera lay down dead. As he goes into the tent, he sees the nail bang through his head. There was no doubt what had happened in that tent. There was no doubt who had killed him. And Deborah's words would have rung straight through his mind as he witnessed the scene. From verse 9, that Yahweh shall sell Sisera into the hand of of a woman, exactly as Deborah had prophesied. And thus God subdued on that day Jabin king of Canaan before all the children of Israel. Barak knew that it was God who had fought for him, God who had delivered the entire host, and God who had worked with Jael to slay Sisera. And it all fell into place for Barak. Up, ah, this is the day that Yahweh hath described, is not Yahweh gone out before thee? And this galvanized Barak now to lead the entire rest of the army and all those that he could muster to take on the rest of Jabin and all of his host. 
to take back the territory that they once had lost. Brothers and sisters, that gruesome story is absolutely captured for us in the battle that our Lord accomplished for each and every one of us. See, because in the story, brothers and sisters, in the crushing of this seed of the serpent, we can't but help to see the type of our Lord Jesus Christ in the accomplishment of the destruction of sin. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 2. You see, our Lord took on in himself this thinking of the serpent and crushed him. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, which is the diabolos. And note what it says now. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject now to bondage. For verily he took not himself the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And you see in jail's Time, brothers and sisters, she delivers the nation of Israel from the one that had captivated them, that had oppressed them. And our Lord Jesus Christ, in his putting to death of the flesh, delivered all of those who through fear of death have been all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider his sacrifice and we consider what he achieved for each and every one of us, let us not see the clinical aspects of Christ's sacrifice, but the murder scene that took place, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Where are we at in our studies? Well, we've been taken on a journey back in history to see the times of Deborah and Barak. Obviously, a time of bloodshed and violence marked by a lack of um, faithless leadership. Um, and as such of, of that, they, they, they fell into disarray and turned to idols. And God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who mightily oppressed them. And so in their distress, they 
sought God's help in their activities. And of course, God's going to work through the remarkable woman in this chapter, both Deborah and Jael, and is going to bring about a, a, a work amongst the nation, inspiring Barak to step forward in his, in his God-given role as the judge who was appointed and to lead the nation and to take captivity captive. And we'll have a little bit of a look at that um, in our exhortation in terms of the title. But we see a woman, Deborah, stand up, who was the, the support, the nourisher of the nation, the mother in Israel, to stand up and guide a failing nation to inspire change. And we left Barak on the battlefield coming across the gruesome scene with Jael, with a hammer dangling down her side, covered in blood, opening the tent door and ushering Barak in and saying, have a look in there, because in here is, I think, the man that you seek. Right? It must have been such a shock and such a sight. And so he comes into the tent, and as we said in our final closing um, remarks, we saw him understand for the first time, has not Yahweh gone out before thee? And he sees that Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, and he, it all dawns on him that God is in control, that God has the power, that God can work with anyone. And he comes into an understanding of all of this, and it says, therefore, in verse 23 of Judges chapter 4, So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, brothers and sisters, we could read that very quickly and skip the significance of that few verses. Because, brothers and sisters, who has Barak been fighting? Barak wasn't fighting Jabin, king of Canaan, as such, in this story. In the previous few verses, who had been fighting? The answer was he'd been, been fighting Sisera and his entire army. Why does the record now say, so God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan? Well, you see, I think what happens next is remarkable. We see the battle against Sisera was actually just a prelude to the main event. It was the, the, the battle against Sisera was the main course. Dessert remained, and it was dessert that was reserved for Jabin, king of Canaan. Because you see, what now happens is Barak sees God's hand amongst the nation. And now he's inspired beyond belief to rally the troops to take back the entire territory that Jabin had stolen and that they might seize their inheritance that their parents had failed to grasp. And so Jabin, as a catalyst now, sees the opportunity to finish once and for all what his parents had failed to achieve. And so it says in the record, the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed. And really means, like it says in the margin, was going they, 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 as they were going, they went and it was hard. And it was hard against Jabin, king of Canaan. Why? You see, because the initial battle had been won, but the war was not over. And the Barak now, with the, with the help of the nation of Israel that now joined him, now reverses the 20-year oppression that they had been mightily oppressed by. And Barak led his people from being a hesitant commander to being the ultimate leader to overthrow Jabin, king of Canaan. 
It didn't end, brothers and sisters and young people, with Sisera's death. It ended when they finally had taken all their faithless parents had failed to take. But I want you to notice something remarkable. Because this is true leadership, brothers and sisters. You read carefully what it says in verse 23 and 24 again. So God subdued on that day. You see, they now could see God's hand. And he subdued the, um, Jabin, king of Canaan, before who? Before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered. You see, this wasn't Barak, brothers and sisters and young people. Of course Barak's there. Of course Deborah's there. But Barak's leadership had now inspired a nation to stand up themselves and to take control. See the power of what we're reading in, Genesis, uh, in Judges chapter 4? You see, where's Barak in the verse? The answer is, well, he was leading them. But the record wants to point out for us that Barak had learned his lesson on what leadership was all about. Then the children of Israel had understood their role in what it was all about because they stepped forward like Barak had stepped forward and execute exactly what God wanted. Barak had learned the fundamental lesson of true leadership, hadn't he? That true leadership is all about service, not glory. He had led his people. Deborah and Yahweh taught Barak on that day that in order for God to be honoured, for all to God to be glorified, self, human pride, and human achievement had to be taken to a back seat and thrown under the bus, brought under subjection so that others might be motivated to lead, so that others might take their role and responsibility, so that others might understand the purpose of God. You see, true leadership is about service, not glory. And to Barak's credit, brothers and sisters and young people, he understood that for the first time wasn't about him. Barak thought the whole thing was about him at the beginning. But now, everything was obvious. And motivated by Yahweh's deliverance on that day, he steps aside as he leads the nation. And they take their position. It's a remarkable story, isn't it, brothers and sisters, of what true leadership can really do and inspire. And so now Deborah and Barak come back in Judges chapter 5, after the battle against Jabin, king of Canaan, after they had seized their inheritance, and Deborah and Barak sing a song, fully inspired by their victory over both Sisera and all his host, and now against over Jabin and his entire empire, having secured all that territory, they come back to open their mouth and to praise their God and to bless the people that had offered themselves willingly in God's service. And this song is a both song of praise, praise to God for what he accomplished. It was a song of thanks, thanks to the brethren who volunteered and jeopardized their lives. It's going to be a song of reprimand, where reprimanding those who refused and ignored to help their brethren. It's going to be a song of blessing, to bless Jael for her courage and her zeal. And it's going to be a finally, at the very end, a petition requesting for God's enemies to be annihilated and to support all those who fight to seize their inheritance. And that's really the breakdown of the song, brothers and sisters. Praise, thanks, reprimand, blessing, and petition. And so we're introduced in verse 2 to the theme of volunteer leadership. 
And then verse 3 to 5, we're going to see the power of God's presence, like in times of old, like in past times. And then verses 6 to 8, we're going to see the context that arrived, that the battle was nestled within. What was it like during the times? What was it so remarkable about their work and their achievement? Then we're going to see the blessing that Deborah gives and Barak gives for those that volunteered. And the cursing, therefore, in verses 15 to 23 of those that did not, the slackers that chose to ignore the call. In verses 24 to 27 is the blessing for Jael's heroic actions. Verses 28 to 30 is the picture of the ultimate destructure of Sisera's mum, which we'll consider on Thursday night. And then finally, the summary that God might totally support all those who fought their enemies. And so we pick up the story in this song, in verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that, saint, on that day, saying, Praise ye Yahweh for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. Do you know, we'll come back to this. If you want this breakdown, we'll put it up at the end. Okay? So I'll carry on. Otherwise, we might be here a bit later than we need to. And I want to stick to time tonight if we can. So there's a connection between the leadership and the volunteers and for how it worked, you see. So praise Yahweh for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. And it's better translated for the revealing of leadership in Israel for the volunteering of the people. It's better translated that way. For the revealing of leadership in Israel, for the volunteering of the people. And so hopefully you can see that I'm not just making it up that this whole thing's about leadership because Deborah's telling us exactly that that was the challenge, that was the issue. It's all about leadership. And what God did on this, on this particular occasion is reveal the leadership that was required amongst the people. And they responded by volunteering. And Deborah sees these two things go hand in hand together as to how this victory was actually accomplished. And she wants to thank, or they both want to thank Yahweh, that in this leadership vacuum, that God had supported people to stand up, to inspire one another, so that they volunteered and a response amongst his people occurred. <clears throat> and what was the thing that she was so thankful for outside of just God, but that the people willingly offered themselves. You see, it was when leadership was restored and demonstrated that faithful examples also came up of courage and that stirred a response amongst the people that willingly gave themselves. And I want you to notice something, brothers and sisters. Look what she says. When the people, she praised Yahweh for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. You see, We've got to read that a little bit carefully because it means more than what it says. Because when it says they offered themselves, they didn't just volunteer. What does it mean that they offered themselves? They didn't just volunteer. It means they volunteered their lives. That's what it really means. They volunteered their lives. They willingly offered themselves. They put themselves up as a sacrifice. They willingly gave themselves, says Deborah and Barak. 
And the point, brothers and sisters, is that Deborah and Barak and Jael's example had inspired others to stand up in the, to join that fight to eradicate Jabin's army and restore the, the control of the territory that they had lost. And I want you to notice carefully who Deborah and Barak are singing the song to. Who are they singing the song to? Verse 3. Hear, O ye kings, and give ear, O ye princes. Even I, I will sing unto Yahweh. I will sing praise to Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Who's she singing to? To kings and to princes. Now, hang on a minute. There's no kings in Israel at this time. Therefore, there's no princes in Israel at this time. So who's she singing to, brothers and sisters? Well, I think that Deborah and Barak were singing not to the people of Israel, but a warning to every other neighbouring oppressive nation that their kings... And their princes might listen up to what was about to hit them next. They wanted them and all the enemies of Yahweh to stand up and be ready because, oh boy, this was coming to their territory next. They wanted to inspire all the other tribes across the nation of Israel to fulfill the mission that they'd failed to finish in Joshua 23 and Judges 1, to seize their inheritance completely. Deborah and Barak wanted to put the kings and princes of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites on notice because their days were numbered. Do you know that's true? You know how I know that's true, brothers and sisters? You turn to the last verse of this song. Look what Deborah says as she finishes the song. So let all thine enemies perish, O Yahweh. But let them that love him be as the sun when he goes forth in his might. You see, this song wasn't a song sung to the nation of Israel. This was a song sung to all the nations around them as a warning to what was about to be seen on their back door. If only this inspiration might occur, that Judah and and Benjamin might continue the fight and that all the rest of the nations might now roll back on their inheritances. And they're singing to Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, the memorial name of Yahweh, the memorial name that represented God's faithfulness to maintain his promises and the fact that he would protect his people from destruction. Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, given at the burning bush that Israel would never be consumed and so now brothers and sisters Deborah and Barak uh, um, address God himself verse 4 Yahweh they say when thou wentest out of Seir when thou marchest out of the field of Edom the earth trembled and the heavens dropped and the clouds they also dropped water and the mountains melted from before Yahweh even that Sinai from before Yahweh Elohim of Israel. And Deborah now builds a picture of what had happened as God arrives at Mount Tabor. And yet in a way, brothers and sisters, as we saw in our last class, she's alluding to another song 
of another remarkable leader in Israel, in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy in chapter 33. I want you to come back with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 33, and I'm going to show you how Deborah is using the song of Moses and the, and the environment and the context to which Moses sings the song in the way in which Deborah sees how this all links as part of God's purpose. Deuteronomy 33. <clears throat> What's the context of Deuteronomy 33, brothers and sisters? Well, Deuteronomy 32 has got Moses just finishing singing the nation and, and just talking about the situation at the end of the wilderness wanderings on the borders of the promised land. And he's just finished telling them what was going to happen. He's been telling them about their deliverance from Egypt, the way in which God provided for, um, provided for them in the food and how that he brought them into a fruitful land. And the promotion, therefore, of Israel was going to be as the head of the nations and that they were going to ride on the high places of the earth as Yahweh's people. And that's the, the point of chapter 32 is look at what God can do for you. And he turns in Deuteronomy 33 and he turns to bless the people. Look what he says in verse 1. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blesses the children of Israel before his death. And what does he say? And he said, Yahweh came from Mount Sinai and rose up from, fear, from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 of his saints and from his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand and they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. And so what Moses does, brothers and sisters, is he blesses the people. He says, oh, I see Israel about to embark upon their escapades amongst the nation. Right? There they are on the borders of the promised land. And he sees them about to burst out. And he says to them, he says, oh, you're this, I see this working in exactly the same way as they came out of Egypt. They, they were going to burst forth in full glory, even as Yahweh came from Mount Seir and descended upon Mount Sinai. And he came with 10,000 saints in full glory to give them the fiery law. Now we see, brothers and sisters, why perhaps God asks Barak to go and collect, why? 10,000 men and go up to the top of Mount Tabor. Why did God ask Barak to collect 10,000 men? The answer was, brothers and sisters, is that Deborah and Barak saw what transpired as the nation left the bondage of Egypt and they threw off the shackles of the Pharaoh that had oppressed them and pursued across the wilderness into seizing their inheritance as this Flood that came out. And the majesty and the splendor that came as Yahweh was seen in his saints was going to be seen once more amongst the nation to save his people and that God would restore his law amongst them once again. That's how Deborah sees the song. You see, the parallel is stark, isn't it? Here's the similarities to the Exodus. You see, Judges chapter 4 and verse 3, the people's deliverance occurs from bondage and oppression. 
exactly the same in the time of Moses. There was a reluctance of a leader to respond just as it was in the time of Barak and as with Moses and Aaron. There was therefore the support that would be provided for them in the wilderness by the Kenites in exactly the same way as the story of Judges. She saw that there would be a deliverance from horsemen and chariots and chariots being rendered useless by water, just like it was in the Exodus. And that God's promise of deliverance would actually happen and that was foretold, just like it had done during the time of Moses, as in the time of Barak. And now there was complete destruction on that battlefield. There was not a man left. Quote, unquote, Exodus 14, verse 28. You couldn't miss it, brothers and sisters. See, Deborah and Barak see all of the story of Judges 4 and 5 as a repeat, a rinse and repeat by God of the events of Yahweh's majestic deliverance and the establishment of his kingdom and law and order being put once more amongst his people. It's remarkable, isn't it, brothers and sisters? What Deborah and Barak could see as they looked at the story, we see it all over again, that God will always look out for his people. And back in the story in Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak looked back at the nation. And they wanted to compare both the state that they saw that Yahweh would create and manage for them versus the state that they had been in. And you couldn't get a more stark contrast, could you? Because they come back in Judges chapter 4 and verse 6 when they go, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways are unoccupied. The travellers walk through byways. Leadership ceased, or the, the inhabitants of the villages, the word villages is chief or rulers. There was no rulership seen in Israel. They ceased all over the land until that I, Deborah, arose. I arose, a mother in Israel. There was no one to be seen, no volunteers, no people, no saints, no 10,000 men, no Yahweh manifest. No, it was a disaster what they saw. Highways were empty, no travellers could be seen, everyone was hiding. It was so bad that any form of leadership had ceased until Deborah stood up. The mother in Israel, as we've already looked at before, the nourisher of the nation. And so Deborah saw that need for leadership. Examples of faith were trying to stand up. Shamgar had stood up and slew men. Ehud had stood up, but the nation had fallen into disarray. No one following. The people were unresponsive. Why? Why were they unresponsible? Verse 8 says, well, they'd chosen new gods. They weren't following Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. They'd chosen new gods. And there was war in the gates. They'd chosen new gods. They disregarded the warning of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 to 21, where he had said to them, you be careful else and not, don't turn to idolatry else there'll be war amongst you. And sure enough, bang, here it was. War was now there in their gates. Brothers and sisters, there's a massive lesson for us, isn't there, in that? If we're not contributing to our ecclesias and volunteering, we have to ask ourselves the question, why not? 
If we're not doing anything in our ecclesia, you have to ask the question, why not? Do you know, the number one reason why we often don't volunteer is quite simply we're serving ourselves. We're not serving others. And we've got to remove self, and we've got to serve. We've got to check which God we're actually serving. What are we doing in our ecclesias? brothers and sisters and young people, if we're not contributing to our classes. And the answer is, we're choosing new gods. And there will be war in the gate. There is another reason for the reluctance to volunteer. What does it say in verse 8? They chose new gods. There was war in the gates. Was there a shield or a spear seen amongst 40,000 in Israel? <laughs> they had no weapons of war. As we said, they were fighting tanks with toothpicks. Why was there no, why was there no weapons of war amongst the nation? Well, we know why, because they had chosen other gods, but they're sinful, because in the face of this sort of opposition and challenge, they stepped up to show great leadership and gave of themselves. They gave their lives willingly. And look at who these people were, brothers and sisters. Verse 9 says, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye Yahweh. Who were these willing Volunteers. My heart is towards the Hebrew word for governors means to cut or to engrave or to inscribe or to mark out. It's probably better translated the law givers. It's the same word in, in verse 14 when we're given more detail when he says in verse 14 or she says, those that handle the pen of the writer. Those that handle the pen of the writer. Who were these people? We see these were the scribes who, like Ezra, were the recorders of history and therefore were the Bible students of the law and an understanding of the truth. These are the ones that kept the record of the history and that wrote out the law and expounded its message for the people. Why is that fascinating, brothers and sisters? Well, what's fascinating about that is that the governors put down their pens, pens, to pick up swords. Just in case you're wondering what we were talking about. They put down their pens to pick up swords for the sake of the truth. And they did this to stand up for what was right against Sisera and his army to get rid of the surrounding tribes and the residue of Jabin's iron grip and restore the land and its territory back to its rightful owners. In their magnificent spirit of their willingness to offer their lives and sacrifice to God and their brethren is, is something that was amazing. They understood the need for sacrifice. But I want to notice something else about these governors. Look at what it says. They, they offered themselves, and look what it says in the word, among the people. Do you know what that word is? One single word in the Hebrew that means they offered themselves as a unit. They offered themselves as a congregation. 
What's the point of the record, brothers and sisters? Well, the point of the record is that this group of scribes and Bible students came and gave themselves as a unified congregation. They'd agreed as a group to respond. And with a common purpose and a common goal, together they marched at Barak's request to assist in the destruction of Sisera and Jabin, prepared to give their lives as an offering for the cause. This spirit is what made Deborah and Barak sing their hearts out and to call out to everyone in Israel to have a look at these wonderful examples who willingly gave their lives. And Deborah and Barak now call to all the classes of Israel so that they might understand now the freedom and acknowledge the freedom that they all now experienced from being bound in bondage and not able to walk around to now that now they say, well, those that ride and those that sit and those that walk, you, you, you guys that have got freedom, I want you to now understand where this came from. I want you to attribute the freedom and praise those who have volunteered and look at the classes that's, that they call out. To the upper class, to the rich, and to the travellers. There's three classes in verse 10. Speak ye that ride on white asses, that ride on these costly animals, the upper class. The ones that are riding around and enjoying that freedom. The horse riders, the pony club people. Sorry if you've got ponies. I've got one, but I'm not one of these. Um... But these are the, those that ride on white horses. I've got a grey one, so it's on way up, so it's all good. The rich, the second class, those that sit in judgment. Actually, the word judgment's better translated, garments. Those that sit on garments. These are the ones that were resting at home on the splendid tapestry and carpets. The rich in their sealed houses. And those that walk by the way, those are the travellers, those the common people that walked around the around the around all over Israel now, the freedom that they could experience, the riding, the sitting, and the walking, they had a freedom now, and they were all now to ponder why they were free. And so they say in verse eleven. They that are delivered from the noise of the arches and the places of the drawing of water, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of Yahweh, even the righteous acts towards the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. And this verse has puzzled um, many of the translators. And so trying to piece it together, I think, is it's, it's quite difficult. But I think in the context, the best way to translate that sort of reads as best as, as this. From the sound of those who have been liberated at the watering holes, there they celebrate and recall the righteous acts of Yahweh, the righteous acts of leaders in Israel. I think that's the best way to translate that verse and what Deborah and Barak are trying to say. That the sound of everyone's singing was supposed to be done at the meeting place where they all got together at the watering holes and they could there celebrate and recall the, the wonderful things that God, the righteous acts that Yahweh had done and the righteous acts of the leaders in Israel it was both God's acts and those that had volunteered. You see, the whole nation 
had good reason to reflect as the leaders and warriors returned home to consider the mighty acts that Yahweh had achieved, that had performed amongst them, and the wonderful example that these warriors had given in standing up for what was right and for fighting the cause so that the nation might be liberated and to enjoy the freedom that they now experienced. Then, she says, shall the people of Yahweh go down to the gates. And the transition is so so obvious, isn't it, between the fact in verse 8 when there was war in the gates, now there's freedom so that they can easily travel to the gates in verse 11. They can sing it to the watering holes outside and they can all now meet at the gate of the city, the place where everything happened. Because now they could go and inherit the cities that they had lost. They truly had reason to sing, didn't they, brothers and sisters and young people, for the wonderful things that Yahweh had done. But now, Deborah and Barak turned their attention to the willing volunteers, the, the people's response to the calling for help. There were two types of responses, brothers and sisters. There were those who came, and there were those that didn't. And when the call came in verse 12 and 13, it came starkly. Awake, verse 12, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Amadon. And then what happens, says verse 13, then he made him that remaineth have dominion over the nobles among the people. Yahweh made me have dominion over the mighty. And you see, this is Barak now singing, I believe, of what actually happened in the story. Barak was to lead those that were both shaken awake, and Barak now was to lead those that had held them in captivity and to lead them captive. God's people had been held in captivity by Jabin and by Sisera, and now the call came to take those that had held them captive, captive themselves. And we saw this, well, sorry, we will see that this Wonderful expression in our final exhort captures the remarkable symbology and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and how Paul says it should drive us to respond in volunteering amongst our ecclesias. So who did Barak lead? Who did responded to the call? Well, verse 13 says, It was him that remaineth. Not everybody responded. Only a portion of people came. But those people, he says, look what it says, they are noticed as calling the people of Yahweh. The people of Yahweh. That's who came. Yahweh made him that remaineth have dominion over the people. A remnant are going to come. A faithful remnant who volunteered, who are going to put their life on the line to save their brethren. And brothers and sisters, throughout time... This has forever been true, hasn't it? It's always a remnant that has responded and remained faithful to Yahweh. You have the Levites who turn in Exodus chapter 32, the Nethinim in the time of Nehemiah, Daniel and his three friends and the friends surrounding them in captivity, the remnant that came in the exile. It's always a remnant that returns and that are motivated. It's not everybody. So where did these people come from 
And what was their motivation? Well, verse 14 says, it came first out of Ephraim. You see, it first came from the tribe of Ephraim, but only a few of them, a root of them, a root out of Ephraim. Verse 14, out of the root of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Maker came down the governors, out of Zebulun, them that handle the pen, and the princes of Iscah were with Deborah, even Iscah and also Barak. And they were sent, or he was sent on foot into the valley. But it was, this, it was a remnant of the tribe of Ephraim. It was a few who had been instrumental that had taken their own inheritance. There was a root of them against Amalek. Why are we told that detail, brothers and sisters? See, so we're told that there was a group of men that were constantly fighting Amalek amongst their own tribe and their own inheritance. They'd been battling Amalek. And they chose to respond. If there was anyone busy, it was these guys. And they stood up and realized the need of what was going to be required. They're the first to come because they've got the experience firsthand in fighting against the Canaanites. Out of the root of Amalek, those that come. See, they had seen the need and the benefits of removing and eradicating the enemies from their own territories. And so they're the first ones who respond to help those to fight against the Canaanites. And their example of leadership and their experience now inspires and encourages the tribe of Benjamin to join, the res- and to join and respond. Because it says, and after thee, Benjamin among thy people. You see, they stood up as a unit. Benjamin as an entire unit comes. It's the same word in verse 9. Among the people. They stand up as a congregation. Benjamin come unified in one accord to assist their brethren. And not only had Ephraim's example encouraged Benjamin, who was south of them, it also now inspires the half-tribe of Manasseh next to to them on the west side of of Jordan. Because from Makur, it says came those down the governors and out of Zebulun, them that handle the pen. From Makur, see, Manasseh has two inheritance, one on the eastern side and one on the western side. Only one half is going to respond, the other half is not. And so those that were living on the western side of the River Jordan, those that were there with Benjamin and with Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, all come to respond. And Zebulun, they come forth, the governors of those that handle the pen. And whilst they weren't necessarily rulers, brothers and sisters, in their tribe, the word for governors being the writers, the example of Ephraim had inspired Bible students who understood their history and appreciated the law. They came to fight out the Canaanites. It was the inspired Bible students who understood what needed to be done. And they dropped the pen and pick up the sword, willing to respond to the call. This is what Barak had mustered. This is who he had now encouraged. And on foot, this group, 10,000 men, are going to march down Mount Tabor and begin a battle and willingly offer themselves and their lives. And Deborah had inspired the leaders with Issachar to be with her. And together they all assembled 
to take out Sisera and his army. You know, brothers and sisters, it's, it's a remarkable response, isn't it? That cascades when true leadership often occurs. You see, Deborah stands up, inspires Barak. Barak inspires Ephraim. Ephraim inspires Benjamin. Benjamin inspires the half-tribe of Maka. Zebulun come, and the princes of Isca. And you see, this is what leadership does. It inspires people to go with them, and they assemble and go. The remarkable response of courageous Ephraim sent an inspirational message to the remnant of the faithful who rallied around Issachar and Zebulun with Deborah and Barak and marched as a unified body in mind and spirit and purpose into battle, volunteering their lives, brothers and sisters, for the salvation of their people. How could God not respond to that, brothers and sisters? Of course he does. There's a massive lesson for us, isn't there, brothers and sisters? How is our volunteering spirit when we're called to help? How do we respond when people stand up and call for assistance? Do we have that kind of volunteering spirit amongst our ecclesians? How far are we prepared to go for the salvation of our brothers and sisters? These people were going to give their lives. How far are we prepared to go? Can we give a bit more? Probably. Do we have the here am I, send me spirit? Or the here am I, please send someone else? You see, leadership is all about service. It requires us to have a volunteering spirit that is prepared to give because we know and because we love and because we understand just how much God has done for us. We understand it's good for the truth. We understand it enhances God's purpose and so therefore we serve, even albeit reluctantly, to give that God might be honoured. God's purpose is about people, brothers and sisters. That requires volunteers. But not everyone will respond. Not everyone responds at all times. In fact, it didn't happen here either. Because now Deborah and Barak turned to call out the slackers who chose not to come. And they're going to represent, brothers and sisters, all the types of excuses and responses that we give when we decide not to respond to stand up and volunteer. And the first ones are... <laughs> Unfortunately, the ones that should have been the leaders. Reuben. Here's Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The 40,000 who went over armed in front of Israel now are disasters because they choose to not come. Look what it says. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob's sons, ought to be the leaders, now show their lack of leadership and direction. So it says in the record in verse 16, For the divisions of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, there was great searchings of heart. The divisions of Reuben, the thoughts, the, the intentions or the resolutions. There were great thoughts of heart. There were divisions. That, that There were different groups having differing opinions of whether they should or shouldn't come. 
And the point I think Deborah makes in this story is, well, they'd had plenty of meetings about Barak's request. They'd held a number of differing views amongst that community. And some wanted to respond. In fact, others were resolved that they should go. They had great intentions to go. <laughs> but when it came to it, they failed to do anything at all. Instead, it says in verse 16, why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleatings of the flock? They remained there with the sheep. See, Reuben were renowned for their great pastures, their magnificent flocks that they had. Whilst they wanted to help, or at least some of them wanted to, life was pretty busy. We've got lots going on. And look, we've got the sheep to look after, and there's things that have to be done. And oh, look, we should go. We really should go. There's things on. We should be part of them. They wanted to, they intended to, but they failed to. Now, brothers and sisters, it's a great lesson in that, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Warning, in fact. Intention isn't action. Intention isn't action. We've got to follow through, brothers and sisters, and execute exactly what the call is. Oh, and that wasn't all. Gilead, Dan, and Asher, well, they didn't even have intentions to respond to the call. Gilead, it says, abode beyond Jordan. Dan remained in their ships. Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his, in his breaches. So Gilead, the, the other half-tribe of Manasseh on the east side of Jordan, and it's, the record, it says, they were beyond Jordan. Oh, it's a bit far for us to travel. I'm so sorry. Oh, we've got a. Would be a bit of difficult for us to work out how to get across, and then and then we've got to come all the way over to see you, and it's a bit. Oh, look, it's a bit far, really, for us at this point in time. Thanks for the offer, but no. It's not really affecting us over here. We've we've actually quite comfy. Thanks. It's not our problem. Dan, Dan remained in ships. Their territory in the north was included all the seaports and the coasts and the Mediterranean. The tribe made their money from fishing. Their livelihood was of more relevance to them. I'm so sorry. We're, we're fishing today. We'll be fishing next week as well and the week after. We, look, we're, we're too busy to come and help. Look, the weather's so good we can't miss it. You, you'll understand, I'm sure. Their brethren were dying, brothers and sisters. But they were too busy to help. It was disgraceful behaviour, brothers and sisters. But we can do it too. Asher, well, he continues on the seashore. He abode in his breaches. They weren't even out in their boats. At least Dan were out in their boats. These guys abode on the seashore. They just refused to respond. It says they continued. They continued on the seashore to dwell permanently. Asher just kept on doing what they're doing. And they just refused to even acknowledge that there was even a problem. It's not ours. It's not our battle. Life's perfect where we are. Sorry, this battle's not ours. It's yours. Go away. For these tribes, it was either too far to go, or life was too busy, or employment was too more important, or it wasn't really their battle to fight. It wasn't their problem. And they show a complete and utter disregard for the lack and lack of care and no concern, brothers and sisters, for the plight of their brethren whatsoever. 
And this is in stark contrast, says Deborah in verse 18, to Zebulun and Naphtali, they say, a people that jeopardized their own lives unto the death in the high places of the field. You couldn't get a starker contrast, could you? Brothers and sisters, that's the lesson, isn't it? We're defined in these moments, aren't we? It's when we're busy that God tests us. It is when we are tired that God tries us. It is when we are stressed that we truly see who we really are and how much we're prepared to sacrifice for one another. It is through these moments and through trial and life, brothers and sisters, that God moulds and shapes us and we find out what we really are made of. We've got to give to others as we have been given by God. God has called us, brothers and sisters, to respond, to assist his brethren, to fight against the enemies. So how are you going to respond? You see, true leadership, brothers and sisters, requires the ultimate spirit of love and willing sacrifice. The spirit of a volunteer who stands up and says, here am I. Send me. Because if we refuse to show care or show love or respect for our brothers and sisters in need, we truly haven't understood or appreciated or valued the love that God has showed us. You see, God gave his only begotten son who laid down his life as a willing volunteer who jeopardized his life, brothers and sisters, that whilst we, as yet sinners, might have the hope of salvation and eternal life. And he left us not a request, not an option, not even a suggestion, brothers and sisters. He left us a commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. How much do we value that sacrifice, brothers and sisters, and young people? How much does his example of leadership inspire you to respond? Well, only you can answer that question. But it demands an answer. It's your choice. You have to make the right one. Do you know it's remarkable, brothers and sisters, because through, through the work of two remarkable women, God showed he would work with anyone to restore his promised inheritance. And through the work of these wonderful two ladies, God restores a land that was condensed with no, no food, no inheritance, nothing, to a land that flows with milk and honey. Because these two stood up. A bee and a goat. And through faithful service, the land is restored and returned to a state that God's blessings might more once more be flowed down upon his people. May, brothers and sisters, we be inspired and encouraged and strengthened by these examples of faith who in their distress 
and in their oppression, in their time of trial, they learned to trust in their heavenly Father and who put their hand up to serve and help their brothers and sisters. They were weak, meek enough and open-minded enough to be inspired by others who then inspired the next generation, who inspired the rest of their people and inspired others to come. Let's be those of the tribe who respond to the call and not those who didn't. In our studies, we've been considering, obviously, the story of, or the remarkable story, really, of Deborah and Barak, and the story that outlines what happens when faithful leadership is brought amongst us in terms of its ability to inspire change. In the time of Deborah and Barak was a time we find the nation had totally lost sight of God. They turned to idols, and as a result of that, they failed to take their inheritance and God then wipes them out and puts them under oppression. And as a result of that faithless leadership, the transferring of the truth from generation to generation, they fell into the, the trap of serving idols and God sold them into the hands of a traitor, Jabin king of Canaan, and were crushed by Sisera under his iron-fisted grip. And under complete impression, we saw the nation turn on their knees to God for help, and yet their leader whom God had requested to lead, wasn't there. He was failing to stand up for his responsibilities. And the story, as we've seen in Judges 4 and 5, is the story of how one remarkable woman steps up to the plate and swings and hips a home run as she coaches Barak to uncover his potential and to take on his responsibilities and to lead in the way that God had asked him. And it was through her inspirational leadership, you remember, and the support that she gave Barak, very simply by just going with him because she understood the need, was able to inspire change amongst him, who then inspired the, na the nation to stand up, who then inspired the tribes to come. And all of a sudden, God's purpose begins to outwork amongst the nation as they spark a military revolution that takes back all of the territory that Jabin, king of Caelan, had stolen from amongst them. And the people, united together once more, begin to worship Yahweh, their father. And we've explored the remarkable lessons, haven't we, that come from the concepts of leadership that's seen in Deborah and in Barak and by Jael to show that God's purpose demands us all as individuals to stand up and to contribute in our ecclesias. And I think that one of the most remarkable things about the story is, is that it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be a Bayrak, does it? Not everyone can be a Bayrak, but everyone can be a Deborah. Everyone can see a need and take a matter in private and to help and coach and inspire each other to, to help in the truth. And so if we can stand up and be leaders in that responsibilities and to fulfill our God-given roles, we can inspire others to their potential in the truth as we walk together in unity to fight our oppressor. And at the end of the battle, Deborah and Barak sang the song. And in our last class, we saw the remarkable duet that, that these two sing. And you remember that they sung this song not to the nation of Israel, 
but to the rulers and the leaders that were amongst the nation as a warning of what was about to happen in their territory. Jabin, king of Canaan, might have dominated the north, but watch out every other king. Watch out every other prince, because God and his people were coming for seizing their inheritance. And so we saw that Deborah and Barak sing about the leaders that stand up. And then they sing about the way in which God's presence was in like in times past. And the nation that flowed from Mount Tabor and that took the territory was like the 10,000 saints that marched into Canaan to seize their inheritance, just like it was from Mount Sinai unto Mount Seir. And we saw that the, that the remarkable transformation came from a time which was absolutely leaderless, rudderless, the context of the nation at the time of Deborah and Barak was a time when there was nothing there. Leadership had ceased until Deborah stood up. And then we saw that the blessing that they sing was the blessing of those that had willingly offered their lives and jeopardized their lives. This wasn't they didn't, didn't this didn't contribute to the truth. They gave their lives to save their brethren. And in contrast to that, we saw the cursing of the slackers who didn't. The tribes, the northern and the eastern tribes who refused to come across to help their brethren. And then they blessed Jael for the heroic actions. And then the depiction, as we had read for us as our introduction tonight, is of Sisera's mother and her impending doom. And then finally Deborah and Barak sing a plea for God's ongoing support so that the nation would take back all the territories that so let all thine enemies perish, O Yahweh, and them that love thee as the sun going forth in its might. And tonight, brothers and sisters, we want to have a look at Sisera's mum. What is with Sisera's mum at the end of this song? It's almost like it's randomly selected and added into the end of the story that we've got this picture of this, this mother looking out the window. Well, it's not random. Certainly isn't random, and it's marvellous, brothers and sisters and young people. Have a look at this. So the context has been focusing on the remarkable bravery of leaders in Israel that jeopardised their life. The remnant of Ephraim and all of Benjamin and all the Bible students, those that hold the pen, put down their pen and pick up the sword with Manasseh and the, the lawgivers from Zebulun, and they join forces as Bible students to chase Sisera and his army out the door. And Barak's own tribe of Naphtali and Deborah bringing the rest of them with them joined in the battle to overcome their enemies. And yet there were those who didn't jeopardize their lives. Those that didn't. Those that remained in the aisles. Those that stayed in their ships. Those that couldn't be bothered. And we looked at all the excuses that we give, don't we, brothers and sisters, to why we can't do things when we're asked. And I captured and the story of these tribes who didn't respond. And Deborah and Barak turned to the attention of the bravery of the key heroine of the story, Jael, the bloodshed, the boldness, the beautiful, brutal attack that she annihilates and decapitates Sisera, that he might never hurt or destroy or oppress amongst them ever again. And with the workman's hammer and the nail of the tent, the two symbols of her frustration, the workman's hammer, the reason they had relocated for employment, and the tent peg representing her nomadic existence. She blots Sisera out with zeal and frenzy and the complete destruction of that mind as she smites him through the temples. And now the song changes scene. 
And it moves from the gruesome murder scene of Jael's tent to the royal castle of Sisera's mother. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why change of scene? What's going on in the story? Well, you remember that the Battle of Judges 4 actually had two parts. And they're reflected in this song, you see. The two parts, the overthrow of Israel's enemies, we often read the story of the destruction of Sisera as the Battle of Judges 4, but the last few verses of Judges chapter 4 actually outline the second part of the battle. You see, part one was the battle against Sisera and his ultimate destruction and demise at the hand of Jael of Judges chapter 4, verses 11 to 22. And the, that's what's reflected in the song in Judges chapter 5 and verses 19 to 27. But part two of the battle was going to be the battle of the children of Israel as God subdues, verse 23 of Judges 4, on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel was going to prosper and prevail against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. You see, what we realise, brothers and sisters, is that Sisera and his battle was purely just the entrees to the main cause. You see, the battle against Jabin and the restoration of all the cities and the villages that he had come that he had stolen was going to be captured by Deborah in the song of the story of Sisera's mother. Judges chapter 5, verses 28 to 31. Ultimately, the battle with Sisera was just a catalyst. The 10,000 men that would come, the rest of the nation would respond and galvanized as a nation they would now completely eradicate and the oppressive regime of Jabin, king of Canaan, with the support of Yahweh, Yah, Yahweh of armies. And what Deborah describes in the last part of her song, brothers and sisters and young people, is the events that would precede the destruction of all those aligned to Jabin and his militant empire. And so Deborah now wants to focus on the mother of Sisera. And though we provided this beautiful insight into the mind of a mother who raised this particular person, we get an insight, brothers and sisters, into her character, the type of person that she was, the type of narcissist she was. You see, this woman produced the iron-fisted Sisera. What was his home life like? And what was she like? And note the way she's introduced. Judges chapter 5, verse 28. She's the mother of Sisera that looked out a window. She's called the mother of Sisera. And by the way, this is remarkable, isn't it? A mother. She's already mentioned another mother in this chapter already. She's called herself the mother of Israel. And now we're introduced to the mother of of Sisera, and you couldn't get a more stark contrast between these two mothers, brothers and sisters. In the story, we have the mother of Israel, verse 7, the prophetess who gave, a servant who willingly offered herself, a woman at the top of Mount Tabor who was in the heart of the battle, surrounded by her warriors, 
who cared for her people and their salvation, and who would sing praises of Yahweh's victory <laughs> compared to the woman, the mother of Sisera, a queen who waited to receive and took whatever she could, a royal, as we will see, who expected to be waited on, a woman in her upper chamber who was as far away from the battle as she possibly could be, surrounded not by her warriors but by her princesses that she totally ignores, who cares only for slaves and for spoils of war, and who's whinging to her companions about the delay of the arrival of stolen merchandise. Our brothers and sisters, these two mothers couldn't be different. You couldn't get a starker contrast between these two mothers if you, if you tried and their outlook on their life. And they stand representative of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent who each had given birth, one to a, to a nation that was galvanised to save and another who was trying to oppress and to destroy. And one mother is interested in her service to others, whilst the other is totally focused on herself and the ill-gotten gains. But brothers and sisters, hidden in this story is so much more than that. So we're introduced to Sisera's mother, who's been anxiously awaiting the arrival of her son from the battlefield. And of course, while she's starting to get anxious... Look what it says in verse 28. The mother of Sisera is looking at the window and she's crying through the latticework. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? And she's looking out this window and she's crying. It means to, to, to bawl or to cry shrilly. shrilly. She's like anxious. She's full of anxiety. What is she anxious about, brothers and sisters? Well, tell you what she's not anxious about. She's not anxious about whether Sisera had lost the battle. Not at all. That didn't even cross her mind. As if Sisera would lose a battle. This is my son. It wasn't even an option. It hadn't even crossed her mind. Israel was totally outnumbered, outmaneuvered, and totally outgunned. They had brought toothpicks. To a, they had brought a, um, a knife to a gunfight, toothpicks to a tank battle. They had nothing. So Sisera's going to wipe them out. Simple. What she's anxious about, brothers and sisters, is what the Bible tells us. She says, look, she's anxious about why the spoils of war. I want to get my hands on these things. She's getting anxious about seeing the evidence of the spoils. Surely that they must have made a plunder by now. It must have secured. Hurry up. Where is it? The, I want the woman for the slaves and the men and the fine garments for Sisera. It's almost like Sisera had gone to the shops, brothers and sisters. Hurry up. I want to see what he's got. She's looking out a window, brothers and sisters. Oh, you don't miss that phrase in the Bible, do you? Because this woman joins the lineage of a special breed of woman. Hopefully you don't look out windows, ladies. Um, a special breed of woman who gaze arrogantly out of windows. You see, here in the story we have Sisera's mum in Judges chapter 5 and verse 28 who's greedily awaiting the spoils of war. Michael, Saul's daughter in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 16 is going to cruelly despise the actions of her husband and her king. 
And Jezebel, brothers and sisters, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30, is callously going to seek to distract Jehu from his murderous task. You see, these women become known as those who look out at the window. Pride and arrogance and cruelty as accurately portrayed, brothers and sisters, by the sin that they represented. And so she's surrounded by whom? Well, verse 29 says that her wise ladies answered her. Yea, she returned answer to herself. Her, her wise ladies. Do you know, <clears throat> we can come back to some of these slides if you, if you want the passages. However, we'll keep mo moving for, for need for time. That word for wise ladies, brothers and sisters and young people, is a special word that's only used four other times throughout Scripture. And the times that it's used is used for the idea of a princess or a noble woman. Now, here's your four quotes. First of Kings 11, verse 3, it's used of Solomon's wives. And Esther chapter 1 and verse 18, it's used for the ladies of Persia or the wives of all the princes of Persia. And Esther 1, verse 18. It's used in Isaiah 49, verse 23, of queens. And of Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 1, of the princesses. And the point I wanted to make, brothers and sisters and young people, was this, that the ladies weren't just maids. They were her royal companions. Now, that's fascinating. Because if they were her royal companions, what does that make Sisera's mother? See, Sisera's mother was obviously part of the royalty. Part of the royal family. Possibly married to Jabin, king of Canaan. Maybe even the queen. We don't know. We're not told. But she was definitely part of the royalty. She's definitely royalty and she's a lady of importance in the empire surrounded by her royal princesses and who are classified as her wise ladies. And she's sitting there at home out the window with her maidens waiting for the anxious arrival of her son. And she's, she's sort of asking their counsel, but totally ignoring them. You read that in the story? Look what it says, verse 21. She asks the question, why is, his why is his chariot in so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot and his wives' ladies return answer? Yea, she returned answer to herself. She's totally ignoring them. They speak and she cuts over them. Why is this chariot coming? They begin to answer and she rudely and arrogantly cuts them off, answering her own questions herself. And look what she says in verse 30. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two, to Sisera a prey of divers colours, a prey of divers colours of needlework, needlework on both sides, meat for the necks of them that take the spoil? Have they not spared and have they not divided the prey? See, she's, she's not interested in the death or the number of deaths or the casualties. She's only interested in two things. Only two things she wants to know about. The first is, how many new damsels have they taken as prey? And it better be a good number. And what sort of garments has Sisera got for me for the spoil? 
Do you know the word damsels, brothers and sisters, means it's a term of contempt. A wench just means a womb. How many more wombs did they get for us to be able to have more babies as slaves? That's what she's saying in the story. How can we get the increase of the slaves that we need in this empire? I hope they've got some more wombs for us so that we can breed more slaves. But the garments, oh, the slaves were sort of there or thereabouts, but the garments, the garments were something else. And her mind begins to churn on these garments, like she begins to be obsessed about them. And she's like almost feeling the fabric and touching the, the silk and feeling these special things. You, you read it in the record. Look at her. She says, to every man, have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey? To every man a damsel or two? To Sisera, a prey of divers' colours, a prey of divers' colours of needlework, of divers' colours of needlework on both sides. She begins to feel the fabric. Ooh, this is going to be amazing. You see, these diverse colours of needlework were embroidery. That's really what it means. They were exotic garments made of expensive imported fabrics and cottons, most likely from Egypt and afar. These were the garments of the princesses, of the queens and of royalty. Psalm 45, verse 14, Ezekiel 26. These were the, these were the garments of nobles or princes. They were female garments, brothers and sisters. They're female garments. You see, the Hebrews excelled in the art of dyeing. As we've seen, by the way, not dying as in dying, but dying as in clothes dying. Right? And, and they, were, they were exceeded in the in making of garments and the dying of garments, especially in the, around the tabernacle and the priestly robes, uh, priestly robes and the expensive coats like Joseph's. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, who were not to be cut. Delilah was probably one of the ones that would make these garments with the loom that she had in her room. They were highly prized possessions and treasured for life. These were the garments that Samson went and got from Ashkelon. The walls usually came from Egyptians and excavations, brothers and sisters, have revealed the wool-dyeing art was a leading industry in central Israel. They were top, top garments. But who were the garments for? Do you know, it's better translated, spoils of divers-coloured raiment for Sisera, Spoils of divers coloured raiment, embroidered coloured raiment, richly embroidered from the necks of them who are taken as spoil. They were going to be garments taken from the necks of them who had taken as spoil. Who was the spoil, brothers and sisters? Well, they were the damsels that they were going to be bringing. You see, what damsels? How is that working? Well, you think about it, brothers and sisters. If Sisera was trying to destroy 10,000 men, what did Sisera's mother expect would happen next? Well, you see, they wouldn't just stop at the destruction of 10,000 men. They were going to get in their chariots and they were going to circle all the villages and collect up all of these slaves and bring them all home to Hazel and take every bit of garment that they could for themselves. These are female garments, and she couldn't wait to get her hands on them. These garments will be for her. This is what I've been looking forward to, the latest shopping trip. It's better than Country Road, better than anything Mars can produce. 
But notice the key words, brothers and sisters, that are mentioned here. Sister's mother wanted to see the prisoners captured. To take what, brothers and sisters? To take... Oh, now these words are going to bounce off the page. A spoil and a prey. Now, does that provide us, brothers and sisters, without, with any echoes? A spoil and a prey? This song focuses on the two phases of the battle against Sisera and the destruction of Sisera's mother because riding up that valley was not going to be Sisera on his chariot. Oh, no. These were going to be Yahweh's saints manifested in a unity, in a unit glorifying him to take possession of that castle. The destruction of Sisera's mother is prophetically going to be displayed in a type we see so many times in history. The overthrow of Sisera was going to be the destruction of Gog. And the destruction of the mother of harlots and her daughters is going to be manifested in the subjugation of Catholic Europe. These events are set before us. The two phases of the destruction of this battle, Sisera and all of Jabin, king of Canaan, and his territories with this woman and her daughters is going to be prophetic, brothers and sisters, of the time of the end. And Deborah, brothers and sisters, sees in type this whole pattern being outworked. And the events are set before us in such absolute detail and precision, uh, precision in the story that it perfectly depicts the events subsequent to Christ's return. Have a look at this. So Sisera is going to not have just his own men. But Sisera is going to have a confederate army. We know that because he had Harasheth of the Gentiles, a city of everyone that were mixed in metal workers in that place. Remember, we looked at Harasheth of the Gentiles. Ezekiel 38 verses 4 to 6. It's going to be a confederate army that makes up Gog's army at the time of the end. Sisera's army, notice what it says, it's going to be full of swords, of shields, of chariots, and horsemen. Judges, Judges 4.15 and 5 verse 8. Well, we know that is going to be exactly what Gog's going to have at the time of the end in Ezekiel 38 verse 4. Yahweh, it says, would fight against Sisera and had gone out before him exactly as God would do in Ezekiel 38 verse 18. And God had promised to Barak in Judges chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, that he would draw Sisera unto him. Oh, that's exactly what God says to Gog. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and you're going to come with me. Ezekiel 38, verse 4. Sisera's motivation of that battle wasn't just to destroy the 10,000 men, but as revealed by Sisera's mother, that he'd come to take a spoil and a prey. The two words that's used of Gogan, chapter 38, verse 12 of Ezekiel. And Sisera's army gathered as a great company. <laughs> Ezekiel 38, verse 4, verse 7, verse 13, verse 15, the key expression used of Gog and his army. 
and God's jealousy and God's fury would come up his face and that there would be a great shaking in the land and there would be rain and hail and fire and brimstone, just as he would. Ezekiel 38, verses 18 to 20. And a sword would go out against Sisera, just as it would with Gog. Sisera's destruction was going to be prophesied by the prophets, just as it would be with Gog. The enemies would flee, and Yahweh and his saints would come, and not a man will be left, says Ezekiel 38, verse 4, just as it was with Sisera. And here, brothers and sisters, in the story, Sisera is clearly set out as a type of Gog himself, leading forth his confederate host, and his ultimate destruction was going to be foreshadowed in the work of Christ and the saints, and the march of the rainbowed angel, and the arrival of the man of Bozer of Isaiah 63, as the ones who shine forth from Mount Seir, and march from Sinai unto the sanctuary, the words we know well. The work of Christ and the redeemed and the glorified saints who are going to come to destroy the oppressor, the oppressor of God's people who had taken their land. It's remarkable, isn't it, brothers and sisters? As the battle and the destruction of Sisera was the intro or entree to the main affair, the overthrow of Jabin and the taking back of the stolen cities, so too is Armageddon to the battle against Jezebel, the mother of harlots, the conquest of Catholic Europe. And you can't miss this, can you, brothers and sisters? Daniel's image has two phases, too, with the stone, the smashing of the image on the feet and the grinding of it to powder. And there is no better and more fitting description of the harlot system of Catholic Europe than the depiction of Jezebel surrounded by her daughters, which have made themselves drunk with the blood of the saints than what is depicted here in the story of Sisera's mother surrounded by her wise ladies dreaming of the spoils of war and the merchandise to come. And as the destruction of Sisera is just the catalyst to bring the nation together as they seek to restore the territories that they'd lost to Jabin, king of Canaan, king Sin. Lorded over by Sisera's mother, we see depicted in Jezebel II, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth, the great whore to whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And look at the picture painted for us in Revelation 17 and 18. It's matched. You see, here we have a great whore. Do you know what she's arrayed in, brothers and sisters? She's arrayed in garments of diverse colours. Funny that, isn't it? She sits as a queen. She rules over many peoples, nations, and multitudes. Who's been working, why, with the merchants of the earth? Who, was Jay, who were the Canaanites, brothers and sisters? They were a group of traders, as we showed in our first study. A merchants of the earth who controlled the trade and waxed rich through the abundance of their delicacies. See, who was controlling trade at the time of Deborah and Barak, brothers and sisters? Because these nation of Israel had to go by the goat tracks to walk around. No one walked on the highway. This queen sat across all of that. And what key things does Revelation 18 tell us that this harlot system loves? Well, they love goods, merchandise, and the souls of men. And her destruction we know in Revelation 18. Don't have any time to look at this. 
Get the, get, do, some, do some research and have a look yourself. It's remarkable because her destruction will be swift, totally unexpected. In one hour, and she'll reward double for all her sins. And the saints will once again burst forth into song as they did in, Exodus, uh, in, in Judges chapter 5, verse 2, because depicted for us, in Revelation 19 is the song of the Yahweh's saints who praise and sing because Yahweh has finally avenged his people. So the destruction of Sisera, brothers and sisters, is followed by the annihilation of Sisera's mother, who foreshadow, foreshadow the work of Christ and the saints and the Jews and the work of Armageddon and the subjugation of the nations that have joined themselves to this harlot system. And Europe is cleansed. And by this process, brothers and sisters, Yahweh will redeem and avenge his people who have cried out from under the altars and have cried throughout time to be saved and will cause his kingdom to once more be established and those saints to be redeemed. And a time of rest, brothers and sisters, will be ushered into being, just as we have recorded for us in Judges chapter 5. It's an absolutely stunning and remarkable prophetic type that Deborah sees before her in the panorama of history is revealed to this particularly incredibly insightful prophetess. And so she finishes her song brothers and sisters, in verse 31. She says, So let all thine enemies perish, O Yahweh, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. But let them that love him be as the sun, a brilliant, radiant sun that goes forth in full glory. And here Deborah beautifully and poetically pictures the work of the saints like the sun as it bursts forth in full brilliance, the rays of which will shine with burning fury to execute vengeance on all of Yahweh's enemies. You see, this prophecy wasn't and song wasn't about just Jabin, was it? It was about all of God's enemies that they would have the same treatment by Yahweh as they go forth. And note, she's picking up the courageous and positive actions of the warriors who would go forth against their enemies. And here in the record, those that went forth on this occasion was Barak and his men in Judges chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. It was going to be Jael in her actions in verse 18 and 22 of chapter 4. It was going to be Yahweh himself that would go forth in verse 14 and chapter 5 and verse 4. And it was going to be the tribes who respond in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. There were those who volunteered, the saints who volunteered and jeopardized their lives in service to their brethren to do what, brothers and sisters? To bring about Yahweh's judgment. And it's a glorious and vivid picture of the sun bursting forth as these wonderful volunteers had donated their lives in service to their God. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? If you can find me where else it might say 
about the sun going forth in his might. I am all ears, but I've only found one passage in the scripture that refers to the way in which the sun bursts forth in his might. And you wouldn't guess where that is, would you? It's the Revelation chapter 1. The vision of John, of the man of the one. The vision John sees, just come with me to Revelation chapter 1. Have a look at this. Revelation chapter 1. Here's, here's the saints, the glorified saints in Christ, executing vengeance on Yahweh's enemies. And in this vision of Revelation chapter 1, John is shown and going to be revealed to the one who would bring to pass and reveal the message of God's judgment. And here, this revelation and this prophecy of the future and the judgment is going to be poured out upon Yahweh's enemies, and it's going to be given by a man who's likened unto the Son of Man. And he's going to execute judgment and vengeance and establish the kingdom of God. And it's not just Christ, is it, brothers and sisters? But a multitudinous Christ body who is manifested in full glory as the glorified saints. You see, John sees revealed before him the 10,000 men that Moses refers to in his song in chapter 33. The 10,000 men that Judges chapter 4 describe. John sees one like the Son of Man. Look what it says in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 1. And I was in the Spirit, he says, on the Lord's day, the time of the return of Christ, the time when execution was ready. And he heard behind me a great voice as the voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven ecclesias which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven candlesticks. And in the midst of that seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man. And look what he's wearing, brothers and sisters. Well, he's clothed with a priest. He's clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This is the saints perfected as priests, brothers and sisters. The golden girdle representing the immortalized saints ministering that's been wrapped around. This. These are workers, brothers and sisters. The girdle that's girded on to serve. Now ministering to the needs of others in active service. And his head, he says, and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his arms were a flame of fire. His hair was wool and, um, and white. This is the saints washed and cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. His eyes a flame of fire. This is the intelligence of divine judgment as they execute God's vengeance. And his feet, he says, verse 15, was like fine brass, as, as if they burned in a furnace, you see, this is the incandescent branch of the saints that go forth to tread down the wicked and to execute divine judgment. And they have a voice. His voice was the sound of many waters. You see, this is the purified and perfected saints 
who are going to call out and who are called out from many peoples, nations and tongues, many waters have been gathered from everywhere, all the tribes coming together. And in his mouth, in his right hand, he had seven stars and out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. He'd be, Sisera was going to die by the sword. His men were going to be died, uh, killed by the sword. And here's the saints with the two-edged sword, divine judgment to execute judgment of the message that would come forth out of their mouth. But above all of this, brothers and sisters, you see what his countenance is. What is his countenance going to be like, verse 16? His countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. Look at his countenance. It's the sun shining in his strength. You see, here is the reenactment of the way in which the saints would once more again participate in assisting Yahweh execute the vengeance of his enemies. The book of Revelation, just as the song of Deborah, was going to be a message not only of hope and relief to the saints, but a warning to the world of warning that the judgment was coming and a counsel to come out of her and to be turned unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel. You see, both of these books, brothers and sisters, both of these stories are recorded both as a message for the saints who were under oppression, under trial, under tribulation, and a word of warning to those that would oppose God. But the saints, brothers and sisters, were to realise just as the, as the people of Israel were to realise in the time of Deborah and Barak and Jael, that God will never, ever cast aside those who love him and that truly seek his face in sincerity and in truth. And John is shown a picture on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos in solitary of the hope that was set before him, that he might not lose hope and that he might see how God will bring to pass his saints. John has shown a man who represented the 10,000 of Yahweh's saints, glorified and immortalized volunteers who'd made themselves ready to lead captivity captive and to bring into subjection all of Yahweh's enemies that God might save his people. So let all thine enemies perish and let them be them that love him be like the sun going forth in his strength. You see, brothers and sisters, we can have so much faith in our God that he seeks our welfare and will save us from our oppression. And the story of Deborah and the story of Barak and the story of Jael shows us just how leadership can motivate and inspire others to fulfill God's purpose in every single one of us. Leadership is not a request, as we saw in our previous study. It's a commandment. We all must respond to demonstrate our love for our God and to see what he's done for us.
Leadership's not always about being out the front. In fact, most of the time it's not. Leadership's about seeing a need, taking initiative, to go forth in positive action, to motivate others in the truth that by our example and by our dedication and by our service and our encouragement, we can show God's love to one another. But it requires courage. It requires bravery. It requires spiritual perception. And it requires diligence. The story shows us the need that we have, brothers and sisters, to serve one another as our Lord has shown us. To be a willing volunteer, to put our hand up, to be prepared in his service, to show how much we appreciate his mercy and his love in our lives, so that we, like those of Israel who responded, are prepared to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It has shown us how we can lead in our God-given roles, both men and women, as we endeavour to serve in his service. The question for us is how will we respond? How will we act? May these remarkable men and women have inspired and encouraged us as their faithfulness shown, who in their distress and oppression and time of need trusted in their God and who willingly volunteered, offering themselves in service. May their example motive us to do the same and encourage each other as we await for the day when judgment will come and God's kingdom is here. Over the course of our studies uh, on Deborah and Barak, we've come to see this remarkable way in which leadership, and we've used that term very carefully, leadership by individuals can motivate an entire nation to change the course of history. And we've seen the way in which the specific leadership qualities of service demonstrated by a woman, a prophetess, the mother in Israel, inspired a nervous and worried and an anxious warrior who was struggling with the enormity of the task that he'd been called to and was failing to stand up and take his responsibility. And his responsibility was, as we've seen, to lead a nation to victory and to lead captivity captive. And Deborah's well-executed and insightful leadership, brothers and sisters, in the nation changed the entire um, oppression, reversing the problem, and sparks a military revolution that led Barak to motivate 10,000 men and saw the nation shake off their oppressive overlords who had mightily oppressed them for 20 years, all because their parents' generation failed to transfer the truth to them in the wonderful things of the inheritance that they'd been blessed with. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, by way of exhortation, we want to draw our thoughts together around the theme of Deborah and Barak and jail, and we're going to unlock the one expression, I believe, brothers and sisters, that sits in Deborah's song that is going to inspire David and the Apostle Paul 
to talk about the way in which God works amongst the nation and the way in which Christ's leadership ought to change us. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 68 is going to take the expression of leading captivity captive and to focus and apply it in the, in, in, in the context of Yahweh's great deliverance that David experienced amongst the nation as they sought to seize their inheritance. It's going to be a phrase that Paul chooses in Ephesians chapter 4 to highlight the great work of Yahweh's deliverance through the work of his Son and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this phrase, leading captivity captive, that more importantly, for every single one of us, is going to have implications and moral responsibilities for us, who are the recipients of Yahweh's salvation and deliverance through Christ. It's going to have a moral and powerful implication for us. If we're going to truly understand this expression. And this morning we want to appreciate that this morning. So the expression we want, to, we want to, as we've alluded to, is found in Judges chapter 5 and verse 2. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, utter a song, arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. You see, the essential problem of Barak's time and Deborah's time was the challenge of leadership. The nation had failed. Remember, we saw that in verse 7. It says, the inhabitants of the villages ceased. Really, it's just the word villages ceased. And the word for villagers, the word for chief or for rulers. There was no leadership in Israel. The nation's leadership had failed. The judges who were supposed to be, the chiefs in each city, the rulers were supposed to be there to help Israel understand the law and to save them. And it was gone. And it was into this leadership vacuum that we saw Deborah stand up to inspire and lead Barak. And the expression to lead captivity captive captures the desperation which with, with which Deborah approached Barak in the very first place. Arise, awake, awake. We've got to get going, she says. We've got, to, we've got to shake off this idea of sleeping and nighttime. We've got to wake. This is the time to get going, she says. She needed Barak to awake himself. Stand up. Get going. Man up and take your responsibility seriously, Barak. The entire nation was being bound by oppression and in bondage, enslaved to a Gentile king, lorded over by a military commander. We've got to reverse this problem, she says. And Deborah's plea was that Barak might... Stand up to fulfill his God-given office as Yahweh's judge to deliver them. And that he might lead an army against those who were holding the nation hostage. In captivity, in total oppression. They couldn't move. They were, they were under his vice-like grip. And that God might free his people through the work of Barak and his men by taking captivity Sorry, captivity captive. Sisera and Jabin were the source of the nation's captivity. And Barak was to stand up to free his people by taking their captives captive. And the result of Deborah's, um, uh, Barak's leadership is seen in, in verse 13. Because it says in verse 13 that Barak's leadership inspire a remnant from amongst the people to join him in this conquest against their oppressors. And we saw, didn't we, in verse 13, that the word literally, the better translation is literally, at that time, the remnant came to trample down the lords. 
And we saw that it mean, really means a unified people of Yahweh came to trample down the mighty ones. It was those that remained. It was a remnant who responded. It wasn't everybody, as we saw. Some tribes didn't come at all. There was a remnant who responded. Only a portion of the people came. And these are referred to by Deborah as the people of Yahweh. And these are the ones who were, as we saw, were prepared to risk and to jeopardize their lives for the sake of their brethren. I want you to notice that expression, the people of Yahweh. What does that really mean, brothers and sisters? The people of Yahweh. What we're going to see, brothers and sisters, is that David is going to refer to them as Yahweh riding amongst them. And in what way does that work? Well, you see, Yahweh was going to be amongst them, a unified people of Yahweh. We're going to be those 10,000 men who streamed down the heights of Mount Tabor, risking their lives to save their brethren that they might release the oppression that mightily oppressed them in their nation. They were prepared to give their lives to save it. And Deborah sees the event of this day as remarkably reminiscent. We've already seen this. Remarkably reminiscent of the events that had gone before as Yahweh moved to save and deliver his people from the bondage and the oppression of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. Because she says in verses 4 and 5, and I just want to cover this because we're about to go back into Deuteronomy and we're going to pick up some expressions and carry them through into Psalms. So here we go, Judges chapter 5 verse 4. Look what she says. Yahweh, when thou wentest out of Seir... When thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth dropped. Uh, sorry, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before Yahweh, even Sinai, from before Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. And Deborah is now alluding back to the song and the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy 33, as we've already seen. So just come with, back with me now. To Deuteronomy chapter 33, because I just want to reinforce this idea of the unified people of Yahweh. So here we are, Deborah's song, and she sees not just the floods of Yahweh's judgment as they are poured out from the heavens that destroy the chariots and the horses and the men that get um, chewed up by the sword in terms of Barak's men, but she saw the water that melted the mountain as the nation of Israel, their 10,000 men, as they poured off that hill in metaphorical language as the people of Yahweh. And so here she says, she's quoting from Deborah's, uh, from Moses' song. Remember, Moses had just finished talking about the nation's current situation, their blessings from the deliverance of Egypt, the provision of food in the wilderness, the entry into the fruitful land, the promotion of Israel as the head of the nations, riding, remember, riding upon the high places of the earth as Yahweh's people. That's how she's described, that's how Moses has described them in Deuteronomy 32. As Yahweh's people and him riding upon the high places of the earth. And so we come. Chapter 33, verse 1, and it says, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Moses now concludes his song by addressing the spirit that they would need to receive forgiveness for their sins. The need to call on Yahweh's mercy with repentant hearts. And he says to them, 
Here's the blessing. He said, look, just see this. Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. It dawned, it, it dawned from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 of his saints and from his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Every one of them shall receive thy words. And here Moses poetically describes the deliverance of Yahweh as he recounts the story of the emerging glory coming forth from Egypt unto Mount Sinai. As the sun rising from the east, his beams breaking forth to the full of heavens and earth. And the 10,000 of his saints pouring forth with a fiery law built for them to receive at the base of a mountain that burnt and shook. And he says, yea, here's the motivation. He loved the people. God loved those people, it says. He brought them out because he loved them. All his saints are protected and controlled. They're in thy hand, says Moses. They're being looked after and being protected, those that were his people. And they came, he says, and they sat down at his feet, every single one of them, to receive his words. And the point that Moses is trying to say to the nation is he says, listen, God does care. He does love his people. He understands their need when they cry. Yea, they that understand him in response, will come motivated to sit down and to listen carefully to the words of the law that he's going to give. And Deborah saw the 10,000 men of their time at Barak's feet, motivated by Barak's leadership, streaming down the slopes of Tabor as the reenactment of Yahweh's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, the re-establishment of Yahweh and his law, which was not seen in any of their gates, because instead war was there. Now, she says, we see the law again amongst the gates. And Deborah's therefore pleading the nation to once more pick up the book of the law and to talk of God's wondrous acts at the watering holes. And can now they can see God's testimony of what he will do for them. And Deborah's pleading with them to repent and to serve Yahweh once more as their God and to become his people that God might dwell amongst them. The psalmist is going to pick up this thought, these expressions, the remnant of Yahweh, Yahweh amongst his people, Yahweh I'm, I'm riding amongst them in Psalm 68. Come with me now to Psalm 68. Because David is going to see how God is working amongst his people to establish his inheritance and to put his people in their land. And Psalm 68 picks up the blessing of Moses and, this, and the song of Deborah, and puts them both together in the context of David's battles. And he's going to show, firstly, the majestic way in which God cares about his people. God does care. And therefore, he's going to show the way in which God will bring about his salvation. 
And brothers and sisters, the context of Psalm 68 is, is probably the time of the writings, probably around the stories of 2 Samuel 8 and 10, 8 to 10. A time when great conquests were about to be undertaken to extend Israel's control over the land that had been dominated by their oppressors around them. This is the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. They're oppressive people that sat around them that had chewed into the inheritance of Yahweh's blessing. And David's going to write a song about his army and what his army is going to do and how God is going to work with his army to establish his inheritance. Verse 1, we don't have time to do the entire psalm. We'll just cherry pick along just to prove these points. Look, let God arise, verse 1. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away. So drive them away as wax melts before a fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before you, before God. Let them exceedingly rejoice and sing unto God. Sing praises unto him, his name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. And so here we have the story of David as he says, this is what we see God doing. He's going he's gonna to do all these wonderful things. The enemies are gone and we're going to sing just like Moses and sing just like Deborah. Why are we going to sing? Well, look what he says. Look at how much care God's going to show. Well, he's, it says, a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows. God does care about his people. Is God in his holy habitation? God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those which are bound with chains. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Can you see how these themes are picked up from Moses and from Deborah? Because here's your proof. Verse 7. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou dost march through the wilderness, consider this. He says, Selah, consider this. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So there's your quote, brothers and sisters, from Deuteronomy chapter 33. That's the quote from Judges chapter 5, you see. Here he was. We don't have time to look at it, but look, he this is the way in which Deborah and Barak and Moses had understood the way in which God worked. And David says, look at how it works for me. It's exactly the same way. And what happened? Well, O thou descend a plentiful rain, whereby thou dost confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. O God, thou preparest thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the, notice the margin, the army of those that published it. You see, this was David announcing to the people, this is what we're about to do and marching as God's army. King of armies did flee before them. She that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lion amongst the pots, yet shall ye be covered by the wings of a dove, covered with silver and the feathers of yellow gold, when almighty scattereth kings. It was white as the snow of Solomon, and the, the hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, the high hills of the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill 
which God desires to dwell in. Yea, Yahweh will dwell in it forever. And the high hills of Bashan that once had leapt is a reference to the opposing forces that had stood in David's way as he conquered the land, flattening them in his path. And he removes the stranglehold of the surrounding nations who had enslaved his people. And he sees himself and his army taking full control over the land of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites, and to take spoils of chariots and horsemen and shields of gold, silver and brass, as he did in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And upon these taking of the territories, David places his own garrisons. Bang, 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 bang. This is mine. This is God's land. And they all became David's servants. And the psalmist likens these campaigns and Yahweh's deliverance to his people as it happened in Mount Sinai and Tabor. Look at what he says, verse 17. Don't worry about the chariots of iron, he says. Look at Yahweh's chariots. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. Yahweh is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Really, it means the chariots of Yahweh are myriads, thousands of charges. He says, oh, don't worry about the 900 chariots of iron. There's nothing, nothing, just like Elisha's servant. There's nothing to be compared with the way in which God can work. They're Yahweh's army, and they are innumerable, says David. didn't matter how many we had, God was there, right around. When God is for us, says David, no one's going to stand in our way. But note who's among them, brothers and sisters. Who is among them? The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. Yahweh, as it should be, is among them in this in, in Sinai, as, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Yahweh's among them. It's Yahweh who's riding amongst them. Who is that, brothers and sisters? Of course it's Yahweh. But how? How is Yahweh riding in the middle of this army? How is Yahweh riding in the middle of, of the 10,000 men? How was Yahweh amongst the children of Israel? Well, it was God manifest in them. It was their characters. They saw the need to which they applied themselves and saw God's word and his law and it emanated forth as they manifested him and all his glory wasn't about them. Yahweh rode among them. And the point that David sees is whilst it was David and his army that went to take Yahweh's oppressors, it was God in them doing the work. They were motivated because they saw what God had done for them. And they responded as they fought for him with his power, his support, his blessing. And they were there for his people. He was their God who was amongst them fighting with them. And exactly as he rode from Sinai into the sanctuary as Joshua conquered the land, so the nations melted before them. And it was God doing the work, not them. David says, oh, we fought it. But one us. And the psalmist now quotes Deborah's song. Look what it says, verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Why? Well, thou hast received gifts for men, for the rebellious also, that Yahweh might dwell among them. 
has descended on high. David had brought the ark to Zion. <coughs> Second Samuel chapter 6. And then proceeded to take captivity captive. Second Samuel chapter 8. You see, God was dwelling among them. But it wasn't just an ark, was it, brothers and sisters? It was the ark of God amongst their hearts. Just as Moses had. Just as Moses had inspired the people through God's presence, Barak did the same. The psalmist adds some additional detail. Thou hast received gifts for men. Really, literally, thou hast received gifts consisting, notice the margin, for, says, well, in the man. What has changed? And the answer is that they receive gifts of men, or consisting of men, or inside men. What were these gifts? You see, David needed the nation to see that following God and choosing to respond was seeing themselves as a gift in response of service. And that God had inspired people who would serve because they appreciated what God had done. That was the gift, says David. A nation of people whom Yahweh was walking amongst. Where does David get this idea from? Well, I think the idea of the gift of people being given for God in response to seeing what God's done and to being motivated by him. Why, that's not taken from anywhere other than Exodus chapter 32, is it? You see, what was the gift of men that Moses saw dedicated to God in response to his deliverance? You recall in Exodus 32, as Moses descends Mount Sinai, I witness the idolatry of the golden calf, he smashes the table of stone in disgust. And he demands the nation, in Exodus 32 verse 26, he says, who's on the Lord's side? Who is it? Who will serve him? Let him come to me. And who responds, brothers and sisters? Well, the answer was, it was all the sons of Levi who responded and gathered themselves to him. And Moses says to them in Exodus 32, we don't have time to look at it, verse 29, consecrate yourselves today to Yahweh, he says. You take yourself aside and you dedicate your life to Yahweh, every man upon his son and upon his brother, that Yahweh might bestow upon you a blessing this day. Exodus 32, verse 29. And what was that blessing, brothers and sisters? What was the blessing of the Levites from Exodus 32, verse 29? Well, the blessing would come in the form of a special role the sons of Levi would perform in service unto Yahweh by being gifted to Aaron's sons. Come with me to Numbers chapter 8. Here's the proof. Numbers chapter 8, verse 17. The gifts consisting of men in Moses' time. What was that? It's the Levites, he says. Numbers chapter 8. Verse 17. For all the firstborn of the children of Israel are mine, says God. So we have the establishment of the blessing of the firstborn, both man and beast. On every day that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. And then he says this, And I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel. So he says, I'm just switching them out. So I had asked that I give every firstborn. He says, I'm, we're going to change this. 
We're going to switch this out. We're going to have the Levites now that are going to be taken for all the firstborn of the children of Israel. Why? Well, I'm taking those, says God. Do you know what I'm doing with them? Verse 19. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do two things. The first one, notice what it says, to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of the congregation. That's the first job, to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle. And the second thing they're going to do is they're going to make an atonement for the children of Israel. What for? That there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come nigh unto the sanctuary. It was their service from the incident of Exodus chapter 32 that ensured Yahweh's blessing in being gifted to Aaron and his sons for the service, note, of the entire nation, that there be no plague amongst the people when they come to worship. They were going to be Yahweh's special gift for service to his people. Come with me back to Psalm 68. What is David saying in the song? What's David saying in this song? What had David been taught? You see, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast let captivity captive, thou hast received gifts of men, yea, for the rebellious, that Yahweh might dwell among them. And the lesson that David was being taught was that although David had led his people to victory, it was their service as God's ministering people, that God was with them. You see, this was beyond the Levites now, brothers and sisters. These gifts of men had expanded from being just the ones that served in the sanctuary, the ones that served in every part of the empire. And they had given their lives for their brethren. And David says, I see these not just as the Levites anymore that had gifted for the service to make an atonement, but they offered their lives for the nation. This was the army, brothers and sisters. The 10,000 men of Barak. This wasn't Levites. It was the spirit of the Levites, though, that had instilled a change in their hearts. And David says, I've seen this expansion from those that were just those that served in the sanctuary, that there be no plague amongst the children of Israel, to the entire army, that they ensured that there be no enemies left. They each would lead in response to seeing what God had done for them in their own ways, to serve in God's nation and to serve him in purity of mind, to dedicate their lives to worshipping him. They were God's gift to serve him and his people. Do you know you prove that, brothers and sisters? Look at the last verse of Psalm 68. Look what it says. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. The God of Israel, the power, the ale of, of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. God had transferred it to his nation. Blessed be God, says the psalmist. 
What a remarkable thing, says David. Look at how this, this army responds in service. That's the spirit with which they fought out the inheritance. What a marvelous response to seeing what God had done for them. So Paul's now going to pick up these themes in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to say, wow, look at how God works amongst the people in Exodus. Look at how God works amongst the time of Deborah and Barak. Look at how God works and how people respond amongst the time of David. He says, well, what do you think we ought to do on the back of what Christ has done? And Paul's now going to pick up and show that the work of Christ was the ultimate way, brothers and sisters, in which God would bring about redemption and deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. That for all the, as we saw in our first exhort, that all our lifetime was subject to bondage, says Hebrews chapter 2. What has Christ freed us from and how should we respond? Paul is going to show how Christ's leadership should inspire us and inspire people to serve as his people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Look at how Paul starts. And perhaps now, in this context, and the reason why we've waited to give this study to the very end is to see how all these themes, Paul's going to just drop in words in Ephesians chapter 4. Look what he says. I, therefore, and have never wondered why it says, the prisoner of the Lord. Oh, now we have a word rich in meaning, don't we, brothers and sisters? A prisoner of the Lord. He's bound, but he's not bound by sin. He's bound by service. Beseech ye, therefore, he says, that ye walk worthy of the conversation wherewith ye are called. In what spirit? In what way are we to respond to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we've been called? Well, he says, well, the spirit that we've got to have is not one that says, oh, how great am I? Look how amazing I am as a leader. Look at me up the front. It's got nothing to do with that. He says, look, verse 2, he says, this is what the spirit of Christ should do for you. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Endeavouring at all times, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It was to be a calling that requires a spirit of self-sacrifice, as we have seen. A spirit that was willing to give their lives for the brothers and sisters. Willing care for all of God's people. Because God's working in all of their lives, says Paul. It's that spirit. Because why? There's only one body. There's only one spirit. There's one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all, says Paul. Oh, brothers and sisters, that Yahweh might be among them. That God is above all, through all, and in you all. And every single one of us, says Paul, that's what it should be. You see, that's Psalm 68, verse 18, isn't it? That Yahweh might dwell among them. That Yahweh Elohim might be in us. 
How, brothers and sisters? It's not an indwelling of the Spirit, is it? It's a manifestation of what we do. So Paul's saying in Ephesians, God's called you to that. How many of us might be Bayraks, brothers and sisters? How many of us might be Debras? How many of us might be James? Paul says, you've got to walk worthy. And that walking should show care for one another and the spirit would be seen by fighting to bond together, to remain united. That's what he says. So that God might be seen as the unified people of Yahweh. Do you get the point, brothers and sisters? The unified people of Yahweh, said Deborah. The remnant that came. That's what we need to see, says Paul. And Paul says now that this is why you should respond. There's something really special, something incredible that's been given to us to assist us in our walk. What is it? Verse 7. And it's not just given to one or to two or to three of us. No, he says, verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What does he mean by that? Unto every one of us is given the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The point that Christ is, uh, Paul is making was that's not the Spirit, brothers and sisters. It wasn't the Holy Spirit in any stretch of the imagination. They had all received the freedom that Christ had given them. They'd all received grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. They'd all received freedom. Each and every one of them had been given the freedom from sin and death. Christ has a portion to each and every one of us. But how we respond is how much we appreciate how much we've been given. So what should that inspire us? Well, Paul says it should inspire us in the same way that David inspired. He saw his inspired army. It says, verse 8, wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Gifts consisting of men. Paul says, okay, Christ led by example. Submitting to death and suffering for the saints. He descended first, he says. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He descended first. You see, whilst the volunteers in Deborah and, and, and Barak and David's time had jeopardized their lives unto death, Christ actually gave his entirety in service for his brethren. And he descended first. But God didn't allow him to stay there. In fact, he lifted up on high. He's now ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So who were the gifts, says Paul? Well, just have a look in your ecclesia. Well, he gave. If you just get a pencil, colour in the word. He gave gifts unto men. And you now link verse 11. He gave some Apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors 
and some teachers. You know, Paul doesn't say, oh, he gave the gift of exposition, he gave the gift of faith, he gave the gift, and it's got nothing to do with the Spirit, says Paul. It's got to do with what they did with it, and it's what they served with. He gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He gave people who served. They were touched by the grace that they'd received. As a response to that, they rose up to work in Yahweh's service. Every single one of them as Yahweh's people responding to the call with one purpose. What for, he says? Well, not for their own personal glory. Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of of the body of Christ. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to build a unity amongst them to try and help them stand up and to give. See, each of them, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, he says, they were all there, willing volunteers, motivated by grace for the care and the maturing, maturing and the working of building up they're Ecclesians. And what were they trying to do? What's well, your theme for the year? They were trying to assist the saints to come in the unity of the faith, the unified people of Yahweh amongst them, in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we don't be tossed to and fro by everything going on around us. Every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness that they're trying to lie and to deceive. There are people seeking self-aggrandizement and self-glory. He says, no, no, no. He says, if we really understand what God's done for us, he says, we will speak the truth in love. They're pursuing truth in love so that we may grow up into him into all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working of the measure of the part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So he says, mate, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, but you focus on taking off all of those former lusts. Renew in the spirit of your mind that you might be a new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, these brothers and sisters threw themselves into the work of the truth because they each individually valued the fact that they had been freed from sin's captive grasp, that they had been freed by their captain's incredible victory, responding with vigour as willing volunteers, moted by love, to show that love to their brethren. That's what Christ's sacrifice, brothers and sisters, should have done for them and should also do for us.
And so, brothers and sisters, now as we turn our mind to the emblems of his love, we now have time to examine ourselves. For we too, as the Ephesians, have received and been gifted in abundant grace by our Saviour's sacrifice. The question we have to ask ourselves is how have we responded to that grace? What have we done in response to his love? How have we given as we've received? Brothers and sisters, it's a litmus, a litmus test question. Sorry, it's the science. If we think about how much we've given, well, that's just a measure of how much we appreciate we've been given. It's quite simple, isn't it? If we truly value what someone gives for us as a gift, oh, we should look to try and return that with love to the same degree. That's the test, isn't it? So the question is, are we like Barak and Deborah in jail, the willing volunteers, the 10,000 men who volunteered and jeopardised their lives unto death to save the brethren? Are we like that, brothers and sisters? Are we like the Levites who stood by Moses on the Lord's side to do the service of the children of Israel to make atonement for the nation, that there be no plague? Is that the spirit that we have? Are we the willing volunteers, like Paul in his time and in our ecclesias, to serve one another in whatever capacity we can for one goal, not just for self, but to perfect one another, to push each other to the kingdom, to work in administration in our ecclesias and to build up the body of Christ. Is that our response? Because, brothers and sisters, if that answer isn't a resounding yes, then Paul says we need to check ourselves to see if we're walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. You see, it requires, says Paul, the whole body, not just a couple, not just 20%. The whole body needs to work so that being fitly joined together and united by the means of every assisting joint, according to the proportionate energy of each, every single part. Because we can't all do it. We can't all do the same. We can't all be a Deborah. We can't be a Barak. We can't all be a Joe. But every part can help, says Paul. The whole thing needs to be all working together by the proportionate energy of each and every single part, that it might affect and assist the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ's work, brothers and sisters, demands us all to give our all. So as we break bread and drink wine together this morning, in unity, let's each one of us commit ourselves to be one of the 10,000 of Yahweh's saints, that Yahweh might be seen among us so that we commit ourselves to walk, to show our leadership in any way we can as willing volunteers in our Lord's service to truly care for one another and to give as we've been given that Yahweh might dwell among us.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.